Not as cold as it was to Cowbell, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and joining me in the co-host chair today is one of my favorite people. He is the Cubs beat writer for The Athletic, a fully owned and operated subsidiary of the New York Times. He is <laughs> Sahadev Sharma. How are you, man? I'm doing well, Kevin. It is a, it is a pleasure to be your co-host today. Uh, I'm also in warmer but still cold Evanston, a little little east of you there, so uh, a little I'll, I'll bit. It's just a this. little east. Yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll take this. I, like it's it's kind of sad that it's what like thirty five degrees, and I and I took the dogs for a longer walk than I normally would in in fifteen degrees because I was like, this is great. Yeah. So uh, excited to get get away from here and cover some prospects in a couple week weeks out in in uh, Arizona. Hopefully, it'll be more than prospects. We can get into that soon. I do want to get into that later, but you are. You're going to go to minor league camp when it, if, if minor league camp starts without big league camp, you're going to head to minor league camp in Mesa. Yeah, I'll be heading out in about uh, ten days. Okay. Um, so we got plenty to talk about. Obviously, you know we've talked about the uh, the challenge, let's just call it, of of creating baseball content at this time of the year when there is no baseball. And so, of course, we'll be talking about labor stuff. Uh, our special guest is a good friend of mine, Joel Sherman, who I'm just a huge fan of. Uh, he and I had about a 40-minute conversation or so about what's going on in the labor stuff this morning um, without our fine co-host who was, had to take care of things like kids and dogs. Um, so talk to him. You'll hear that in the middle of the show. Uh, we are going to talk about kind of some uh, hopefully post-labor stuff and, and just not a great week in terms of uh, news, but we want to talk about uh, a little bit about what's going on with the Tyler Skaggs trial. Um as our, our, our co-host is a wonderful expert on the Chicago Cubs. I'll talk about the Cubs streaming weirdness. Um, and we'll get into some other things like that. Are you ready to go? Yeah, yeah. I'm ready to go. Uh, Kevin, as I said, I, I'm going to take a little detour here. <laughs> and, and quickly, just thank you for having me on. And I want to just say I listened, well, I listened to you and Jason Parks uh, every day back in whatever it was 10 12 how did you listen to us every day when we did a show once a week (laughs) so this is how it was i discovered it about maybe six months late maybe longer and and i listened to a couple episodes and i and i decided i need to get in on every inside joke that they're talking about (laughs) and you guys did like two hour podcast right and back then i was working my way up at espn radio nobody knew who i was I was desperate to be in this business and you guys, I didn't know you guys then before that. And I would listen to the two hour podcast on my drive from Chicago to Vernon Hills, where I had my day job. And then on from Vernon Hills to the ESPN studios 
I would I would listen to you guys and just dream of like oh someday it would be amazing to know these guys and talk baseball with them. <laughs> And, you know, and, you, and then me, you met us and it was all a disappointment, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, it seemed like a pipe dream, too. It, it seemed like, it, you know, I listened to – I watch TV or listen to stuff now, and I'm like, wow, it would be cool to – you know, I watch food shows. Oh, it would be cool to eat food with David Chang and, and listen to him talk about food, you know, things that likely will never happen. And that's how I looked at hanging with you in parks. And somehow it worked out. Somehow uh, – I mean, both of you had really kind things to say to me as I was coming up uh, in moments that, you know, likely all of us go through where you just want to give up because it, it doesn't seem like it's working. Uh, so Every morning. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate being on this. It's a kind of a surreal experience at times being your co-host for a day. Uh, but but it's it's very cool that that I've gotten to this point where I can say Kevin Goldstein and Jason Parks are people that not only I know, but but I consider friends. Oh, that's that's lovely. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll just end it on that. <laughs> um, maybe we should end it on that because um, everything we it all talk, goes downhill. From everything here. we need to talk about is bad. Yeah. Really, really bad. Um, I, 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 we have to talk about this. It's a difficult thing to talk about, but um, the the trial into the death of of uh, Tyler Skaggs, pitcher for the Angels. Uh, is underway. Um, it's not getting as much. I don't know. I don't hate to say traction, but like attention as I thought it would. It has been a little explosive um, with allegations of other players uh, being, you know, some of the providers of drugs to Tyler Skaggs. Um, you know, and obviously we already seen that the, the the stories of people involved with the Angels also uh, being, you know, Tyler Skaggs providers. Um, it's not a fun story to talk about but at the same time like you know baseball players are seen as superhuman they're human they're not superhuman they're human they have foibles there are plenty of people in baseball that have alcohol and drug problems uh Tyler Skaggs was one of them um I'm just kind of made sad here but do you think that there's anything going on here that obviously it's you know I whether it's good or not for baseball I don't know if that even matters but um like, do you think there's any sort of long-term effects from this kind of story coming out? Yeah, I'm not sure if there's long-term effects. It, there's, I mean, obviously addiction is a problem far beyond baseball, but it's, I mean, you can, I just reading some of this stuff and following it, uh, you think about the injury issues that players try and battle through, and I right. and that makes sense how you can get addicted uh, to different painkillers and then lead, you know, even when you may be fully recovered from an injury, this is just part of your life now because you're addicted. And, and we all know uh, how bad opiates are. I mean, it's been an issue in our country for far too long. And it's and still mostly ignored, unfortunately. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it's just really scary and sad and and i think about what you just said about how we think like we sometimes don't think about athletes beyond what they do on the field right but that's part of my job as a beat writer going in that clubhouse uh you know before the pandemic going in that clubhouse every day over the sum over summer six months uh of our life is spent talking to these people and you and part of if you're good at your job you understand that you start to see Early on, you know, you may not, you may just be so focused on baseball and trying to get a story that you don't think about it like that. But part of what I love is, 
is talking to these people on a human level and, and getting to know them. I think that's part of mm-hmm. how I do my job well, right? So you start to realize they're human. I mean, we know that they're human beings, but it, it kind of hits you a little bit more. I can talk to them about my kids. I can talk to them about what we did last night when we we're on the road, whatever it was, all sorts of different things. And, and to realize that they also have like these same issues that you know a family member or yourself may be dealing with right you, you like myself right now i'm dealing with a close family member that's dealing with addiction and mental health issues and it's a constant struggle mm-hmm. and i can't imagine what it's like for the teammates and the players and to know that a pr member i mean we deal with pr people so much and to know yeah. that that person was in the midst of it uh it's it's just a sad story i don't know what else what the fallout is and the long-term consequences are i i hope there are positive consequences and that something good can come of this in some way but it's it's just really sad and it, i mean 27 years old that's that's far too young and it's just it it makes me (laughs) it makes me sad Uh, like these are i mean we're going to talk about more sad stuff uh going forward Uh, Mm. (laughs) not nearly as you know impactful as as this but it's just like this isn't why we cover baseball that's that's the the part that always frustrates me when the when real life intersects with the baseball aspect it's like baseball's our man yeah it's like i don't want to i don't want to like I have to and I think it's important when when these stories come up it's like I have to cover it well like when Addison Russell happened right. I had to I had to cover that well I had to talk to people that knew more about these subjects than me and educate myself and make sure I was getting it from all angles and not and not doing a sloppy poor job and just taking the PR stance and just hearing what Addison Russell had to say and writing that word for word that's not the way you cover these things but I don't like it's exhausting. It's exhausting to have to cover <laughs> and that and like it's just I, you know, I it sucks that that we have to, you know, let our fun little game and, you know, our our jobs that are escape from reality. Uh, we're lucky enough to have these jobs and and then it all, you know, we have to deal with the real world with it as well. Well, I mean, let me ask you this question, because I, I feel like I'm in the dark. Um, or I feel like I was in the dark, not the first time. And, um, but you know, like, it's funny, like if you would have asked me, um, you know, before the, the, before Tyler Skaggs passed away, like if baseball had an op- opioid problem, I would have said, I don't think so. But I, at the same time, I would have said, I bet football does. Cause obviously football is a far more physical sport and those guys are constantly playing hurt. Um, and there's been evidence of it already. Um, you know, even in this trial, you know, Skaggs' own mother said he was addicted to opioids and 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 started doing them um, as early as 2014 when he was having elbow trouble. Um, do you think that there might be more of an opioid problem in baseball than I thought there was, or or that I think most people think there is? Yeah, that's. I think that's the part that I'm starting to question. I don't think it really hit me until I started reading this stuff. Like, wait, is there this opiate pro? Like, yeah, I, that I think was I my said, reaction exactly. Like, wait, is there a yeah. problem here? Like, I I never really thought about it. And maybe I'm being naive and even questioning. Like, of course there should be. Like, if there is, why would I just think it's just the NFL? Why? Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys suffer from injuries, and they have to. Like, how often do we hear about guys playing through injuries? And yeah, I was about to say, like, you know, you again, obviously before the pandemic, like you were in the clubhouse. Um, you know, our front office, like you saw guys hurt, like guys were hurt, guys were playing right. hurt. Um, it's 162 games and in, in 180 days, guys play hurt. 
And like I'm sitting there going, shit, is this really a problem? And I have no idea. Yeah, well, I mean, a little tip to if we ever get back in the clubhouse to young reporters, relievers are the best people to talk to. uh, (laughs) And they will just tell you, like, they'll straight up, the good ones, the ones that like to talk will just straight up tell you, yeah, man, like, yeah, I know I haven't pitched in four days. I know you're wondering why the manager didn't call me. It's because my elbows barking like crazy and I've been warming up every day and I just can't I can't get loose and and it's like well why don't you go on the IL because I because this happens every year and it'll go away in in a day like it, it normally is fine like this they are always pitching through something relievers are always throwing through something like and we don't and you, you can't report all that stuff because that's how you get information but it's it's happening and guys are dealing with nicks and whatever it may be and and who knows what they're taking to get through that. You'd like to think it's, it's, you know, just regular treatment, but who knows? Uh, and that's, and that's sad and scary to think about. And, and it's hard to know for sure. Now I have no, now I'm not saying I have any like evidence of that. I'm not saying that, Oh, I know that guys are taking things. I don't know. That's my point. Like, I just don't know. Nobody's ever suggested that they are to me, but like with when a story like this comes out you start to wonder what don't i know what what are these guys doing behind the scenes whether it's recreational or to get through the day because your body is is you know aching and you need to you know you can't afford to be hurt because when you're not available that's an issue right that it's your next contract it's your minor league option that's there that Mm -hmm. uh you know if you're not put on the il you're sent down and this may be your one shot you know how many times i mean we have friends that uh you know never got that shot to to get in the big leagues right because they were injured at the time when when their number should have been called or you know they weren't they were pitching through an injury so it looked like their their numbers weren't as good as they should have been had they been healthy so all these things i mean these are their lives and these are their careers and sometimes they do whatever it is to get through it you know this sounds like it early on was doing whatever he could to get through it and then he led to an addiction so uh, it's tragic and, and hopefully there's not a major problem, but I, you can't, I, I don't want to be naive and suggest that there isn't. Um, yeah, you gave great advice there, not just the young writers, but to fans too, as far as listening to relief pitchers. And I always tell people like when you're watching whatever your favorite team's game is and, and it, they cut the, the call to the pen happens and they bring in Jones and you think they should have brought in Thompson. There's like a 20% chance that the manager really did something you didn't agree with. Uh, a 20% chance that there's actually a good analytical reason for that move and a 60% chance that the guy you want them to come in with isn't available. And, yep. you, just don't, and you just don't know it. Like It's, it's, it's not, so true. So they didn't say before the game, yeah, yeah Thompson's down. They're not going to tell you that because mm-hmm. they don't want the opposing manager to know that, but like Thompson can't get warm right now. Learned that early on in my career. Don't, don't, once I started getting in clubhouses and talking to people, don't tweet during the game like he should have brought in this guy. Not Don't, you can say like, Hmm. It doesn't like I would have made sense to go with, you know, reliever X here. And he went with Y. I wonder why you can say, I wonder why there's got to be a reason that doesn't make sense. And then you you ask the manager afterwards. And if they're honest, they're honest. If not, they'll say, well, I had six options and I went with option, you know, two. your option makes sense in, in certain ways. Right. And I've, Mm -hmm. I've had these conversations with Joe Madden. I've had these conversations with David Ross on and off the record explaining why, like, I think it's important to make sure that they understand why I'm asking 
these questions. I'm not questioning your decision making as much as trying to understand your decision making. It's not like I know any better. They have all the information that I don't have. I'm just trying to understand it. And and there's always more information. And there's even when we ask the question, there's still more information that we don't have. Oh, yeah. You hear it all the time. Like, even like, you know, thinking about being at games and like sitting in the suite and just like, aren't we going to Will Harris here? Like, he got that side thing. He just can't get going. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yep. um, you cover the Cubs. That's your job. It and is. The, and, and obviously, we live in a world where there are no transactions. There is no uh, getting ready for spring training. There are no previews to write and things like that. Um, but the Cubs did give you a story this week. In the sense that the Cubs are looking into, and I didn't look too much into this because I said, I'm going to save this to talk to my fine friend Sahadev about this. Um, they want to stream something and Major League Baseball not, might not be thrilled about this. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, I, I think this is being floated out there as like almost like a trial balloon, mm-hmm. uh, possibly by Sinclair. Uh Right now, the number that's out there is $18 a month, which if anybody uses streaming services, that's crazy if you're just talking about getting marquee. Like, listen, I love Boog Shambi. I love JD. Those are two of the best in the business. Uh, I don't get to watch Cubs games on TV often enough since I'm in the uh, press box, but those guys are amazing, right? Like, I, I would suggest watching them every chance you get. Uh, for Cubs games, uh, but <laughs> that's that's 162 games, right? That's six months of the year. What so do you, let's back up a second. So they're talking yeah. about creating a streaming service of just the marquee network. And was that 2020 it launched? It was COVID year it launched, right? 2020, that is correct. So in 2020, the Cubs, like many teams, you know, the Yankees or whatever, and the Cubs are obviously a big, the Cubs are a national team. Like there are national teams and locally. The Cubs are a national team. They, As you know, because you travel, they travel as well as anyone. You can go, you, you watch Cubs Reds and it's kind of a 50-50 crowd. Um, if so the, that, yeah. If that. And so the Cubs, throughout the, let's call it the trial balloon, of creating a streaming service for this network that they have is called Marquee, um, of, of their, their, you know, their private network for $18 a month to get Marquee Network streaming. And if you got that, therefore, you would get Cubs games. And like Major League Baseball is like, well, wait a second, we have MLB.TV, right? TV, right? So... Uh, my understanding of this, it, now I don't understand every detail, and it's it is complicated, and there are more questions than answers right now since nobody's really talking on the record about all the details on this. But they can only sell in market streaming. Out of market streaming is owned by MLB. Pretty sure they have that exclusively. You can't stream out of market unless you have MLB.tv. Right. So this, so the, so the issue here is MLB eventually, uh, reportedly wants to create a non-blackout service, right, where everyone gets everything with MLB TV, right? Right, and we've all, no, we all know about the blackout rules, and it's they're they're insane, and like you know people, you know the the purpose is to get people to buy tickets, but like you know people in Iowa can't watch Cubs games, um, right? You know, and things like that. And, and they know it's a problem and they would like to try to find a solution. RSNs are not the most easy thing to deal with. But when you say that Marquee can't stream out of market, are you saying they would only offer this service to people who live in Chicagoland? Yeah, I think it would be. That's what I'm a little unclear about. Because so 
Marquis and Sinclair, so what what exactly did they float here is what I'm trying to fully grasp. Are they saying $18 a month just for Marquis? Or is Sinclair and Marquis, who uh, Sinclair owns 50% of Marquis, I believe, with the Cubs. Okay. Uh, and so are Sinclair and Marquis kind of – is Sinclair putting that out there because – of the teams that they have rights to, uh, you know, that they, they own uh, what I believe is now Bally, right? And that's mm-hmm. where most, uh, you know, almost 50% of baseball teams are now on a Bally uh, network. Arsene, yeah. yeah. So is this a sort of like, let's put our biggest name out there and, and float this out there. Here's this crazy price that we throw out there. Uh, but is it is it sort of like is the plan a more of a package deal but even then like i said it's it can only be in market that you can't sell from my understanding and i i hope i'm not wrong on this is out of market is exclusive to mlb tv uh, i don't right. believe that's wrong and so i they can't do anything about out of market so it can't even be like a package deal it would be those Cubs people that those Cubs fans that are blacked out because of MLB TV because they can't get a deal done with uh, all the various companies that I, I believe they don't have a deal with Hulu and, and YouTube. I, I don't know all the I wish I knew better who they don't have a deal with, but it's it's uh, extensive enough that I know, uh, you know, there were times where if you didn't you you were the weird one if you didn't get Cubs games on your whatever basic cable package. Right, right, right. right. Now it's like it's hard to run into someone and not hear I don't even get marquee I don't even know like right. I can't get marquee like I there's a lot of people that I talk to that are like I don't even watch the Cubs on TV anymore and you know it makes it easier for them to say I don't you know I don't seek it out when the Cubs trade away all their superstars but still it, it's still a little odd to hear that that I don't watch the Cubs games because I can't get it on my whatever whether it's cable package or streaming service whatever it is uh so there's so there's something else here that I I, I want to fully understand. Now Sinclair also has rights to a bunch of NBA teams as well. Mm-hmm. So is this is it possible that they can somehow find a way that this is a package thing? Even then, I don't find it that attractive. Right? This yeah. is the, this I, is all about uh, RSNs and the issues that we're running into now, and how it's just not as profitable, and it's not going to make sense. And everyone's cutting the cord, and and eventually there needs to be uh, an in-market streaming service. Like it just needs to direct to the consumer, right? And right. whether that's through MLB or through Sinclair, and that's the battle that I think we're dealing with. I know there's bad blood between MLB and Sinclair. How do you figure this out? Uh, uh, I, I think it's important to get it figured out in some way because even I I buy MLB TV too because I like to. I like to watch uh, all the other games, sure, uh, sure. you know, so, so it's, it's, I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice feature. And, and if you get rid of those blackouts, it's, it's great. It's a great product and, you know, you can watch it on whatever device you want and, and it's, and it's fun to, to kind of just like dive into different baseball. And I think it's, and I think it's a good way to market. It's an easy solution. It's an easy, I should say it's one way to kind of get, you know, try and bring bring back the young fan right yeah, uh, for sure. if you can watch it on any device without any blackout your your parents or the kid gets a subscription however it works i think that's a that's a nice way to do it i know i know i would love to be able to just like have my son watch cubs games on his ipad when i'm at the 
ballpark, right? And, you know, we've been hearing or I mean, for a decade now just about the RSN bubble and how and obviously a, just a massive, massive, I don't think even people realize how huge a chunk of, of a baseball team's revenue is their TV package. Um, it's enormous. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, like you said, there are people who say, I don't get marquee. Like, people are unplugging from cable. Like, the ca- cable is not growing. It is declining. And, you know, I still have cable. I admit it. I still have cable. I'm a, I mean, I'm an old. Um, <laughs> I still have cable. But I get so much with it. Like, I, I, I have it for basically live sports and live news and stuff. But, I, you know, it basically pays for all these other streaming services in its own way. You know what I mean? I get HBO Max and Showtime and what all this other stuff that we watch um, through it. And so I keep it. But... Yeah, people are unplugging, and it's the, the you know the RSN money is going to it's not going to go away, but it's not going to be what it was once was just because the viewership isn't the same. Um, there has been a lot of talk like of MLB.tv becoming a more uh, flexible service. So if you just wanted to watch Cubs games, you could do that if you will. Like you could just buy the Cubs package, right? Yeah, um, the, the, there's been rumors about that, right? That yeah. I mean, that would be great, too. I, I mean, they need to figure these things out. It's unfortunate that there's these battles going on, but I guess <laughs> that's just what every every part of this is a mess in, in certain ways. <laughs> um, I, I kind of want to let's stay on the Cubs um, because that's that's who you cover. Um, we talked about this a little bit on last week's show where. Like at some point. Don't worry about when, but at some point, this this we're gonna have a labor agreement. And we're gonna have baseball. We can agree on that. Um, and and when that happens, um, Manfred in his press conference yesterday said it'll just be days before spring training. Um, teams that I've talked to expect to have seven days or so before spring training okay. starts up. Um, but so seven days, and then a four spring training. Teams aren't done yet uh, in the sense of their off season. Um, and obviously there's, there's hundreds of free agents out there, um, hundreds of, of, of minor league free agents out there. Like there's still a whole lot of, of roster construction to, to do. Um, there's all been all sorts of, it's the Cubs have had a weird off season and all of a sudden, like, you know, you still have rumors going around, even though the moose can't be made. And like, people are talking about like the Cubs, you know, looked into bringing Anthony Rizzo back. And then uh, even larger than that, there, there has been the Carlos Correa rumor, like, what do you expect from the Cubs in, let's just call it those seven days, um, once they say, hey, we're going, baseball's going? Right. Well, I mean, I think they, they their number one priority coming into the offseason has been addressed. It was pitching, 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 starting pitching, you know, with a huge emphasis. There was no real, like, there was a big gap between one and two on their priority list. Uh, they pounced on Miley. They got Stroman right before the lockout. It's hard to... Uh, see them it's hard to imagine that that's still the number one part i mean i know it's not the number one priority any longer right that's they they'd love to get some depth there but looking at the market it's not realistic to get a no doubt rotation starter they got two no doubt rotation starters Mm -hmm. that's what that's what their goal was now it's about building depth there so that's probably you know like third on the list now Jed Hoyer straight up said his priority was finding bat missers. Neither of those guys are bat missers, right? right. They're they're going to live on contact. So it, it was more about opportunity, right? It, th- these are the guys that presented the best opportunity, and and the Cubs weren't going four or five years on on these deals uh, with the pitchers that were available to them. 
uh, and, and they got Stroman and Miley. It just made sense for kind of what their timeline is and what they're looking to do and how they're looking to spend their money, which they have plenty of it. Uh, it's just about how they want to spend it and how many years they want to give out. Uh, so now it's how do you how do you a maximize those guys that you brought in uh, and b where do you get the bat missers because you still have to get some bat missers so the I think priority number one is upgrading the infield defense you're talking about a defense in 2020 that was elite uh, and and a really good defensive infield that's pretty much all gone mm-hmm. right and and right now at the moment their best infield defender is going to be playing his uh, probably second best position, right? Nico Horner is a great infield defender, is a great second baseman, right? Defender there. He's a gold glover. He's he's one of the best in the game when he's healthy and and playing second base. Shortstop. Uh, Stretched I mean, a little bit. What's that? Yeah, he's yeah. A little stretch there. Yeah, and and I'm not saying he's bad or or you know you know would be you know a significant minus there i would just say you know maybe some people would say he's below average i would say he's average maybe a tick above maybe and i think i'd be gen- i think maybe you can you can tell me if i'm being generous by saying he's a tick above but probably probably average let's say average there that's not what you want when you have Kyle Hendricks, Marcus Stroman, and Wade Miley fronting your rotation. You mm-hmm. need an elite defender uh, that can help, that can kind of push everyone around the infield into more comfortable spots. I think they, what they're looking for, obviously, Carlos Correa makes a ton of sense, right? There's so many reasons why. A platinum gold glove winner, young. Uh, he's going to, next free agent class doesn't look that special. So what are you saving your money for right now? Uh those are some of the plus arguments as well as, Hey, they need a middle of the order bat and he'd fit, fit that as well. Uh, so I, 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 there are plenty of reasons. I just don't see them winning a bidding war. I just don't see them going the, however many years it's going to take, uh, if there is a legit bidding war. Now, if you want to talk about who the suitors are, suddenly that's where it gets interesting, right? right I don't right. know how many suitors are out there. I just, my default always in free agency is they're not going to get the guy, right? That's my default because in all likelihood, the percentages are against you getting that big free agent. I'd be, I'd still be surprised if they get him. I won't rule it out because of all the reasons I just explained that it does make sense. But ultimately what they need is a versatile infield defender that has a plus glove and can kind of play multiple positions. And I think they'd love to utilize depth and go, I think that's number one right now. Number two is probably filling out the bullpen and you want multi-inning guys. You want guys that can strike out guys. And then number three is that a bat middle of the order bat, which doesn't need to be a priority really. Uh, Cause this isn't a team that's going to go into the season. Uh, even, you know, they're not going to go in favored for the world series. They're certain they're certainly not that. And mm-hmm. in all likelihood, they're not going to go in as any of us are going to expect them to make the playoffs. So what they're, what it'll look like this team and like, yeah, I could see it. I could see things clicking and, and you know, them sneaking into the playoffs. I could also see things falling apart early and, and them selling off, you know, guys that are impending free agents. So that's, that's what I think their needs are. The other big storyline is Wilson Contreras. Like I, I think this <laughs> this really screwed things up. The lockout. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a tough situation. They need to decide. And I have a question for you once I explain this. But they need to decide. 
extend or trade, right? And they don't have much time to do that. You know, there's just not a lot of time to get that done. Uh, they they got Jan Gomes not just to, as insurance if they can't get an extension on and trade him. That's part of it, but that wasn't the main reason. David Ross and the front office were stressed out last year with their backup catcher situation. It yeah. was a mess. Everybody got injured. They were calling up guys uh, left and right, guys that just weren't ready for the big leagues or were you know it couldn't really handle the backup position. And Ross, former backup catcher, really believes that's a really important spot, and he had to ride Wilson. Contreras way too hard especially early and and that wears on a guy and they want to utilize the DH they want to utilize first base and get Wilson more at bats without crouching behind the plate every day mm-hmm. and have him be they believe you know he's an above average uh, offensive catcher but if you look at his numbers he's not uh you know elite by any yeah. no but they believe he could be if he get if he isn't being ground down uh, be, uh, as a catcher, and that's interesting. I'd, I'd be curious to see what what happens. I, I've seen him go on tears where it's like, "Whoa, yeah. this guy, this guy's an offensive monster." So maybe there's something more there. So I, I'm curious on that. Now, Kevin, this is my question to you, and I've talked to some people about it. Starting catchers, that's not, from my understanding and from what I've observed and the people I've talked to. That's not something you want to work to like hold on to and try and trade at the deadline. Like that's more an offseason thing because you want that guy in spring training with your team. The more hot commodity at the deadline seems to be backup catchers or that veteran guy that's technically a backup, but we just right. had an injury, so we're going to put him in there and he can handle it for a month until our guy's back. Is that fair that that's not like the best time to trade a catcher, a starting catcher? Um, I, I, I... I, it depends. Like, I, I think a guy like Contreras would have a perfectly fine mark. Because like you okay. said, he's, he's seen as an above average guy. It's not like this is just a starting catcher. This is a good one. Um, and it's a good one in terms of both, you know, at the plate and, and you know, like a solid defender. And, and as you know, like a good reputation for um, the soft science catching stuff, if you will. Yes. Um, pitchers like throwing to him. And so yeah, he works his butt off. Yeah, that's for absolutely. Sure. So he's got a great reputation for that. So I, I don't think it would be a problem in Contreras's case. I could see how that's a general thing, but I think Contreras would would uh, rise above that, if you will. Okay. Okay, uh, that's good to know. Um, do you? If they got Contreras, like this, this is so the Cubs are weird in a few ways. Yeah. Um, but like if you look at you know their projected starting lineup right now before they finish their season, if you will, or their off season. Um, they had a lot of, of kind of older minor league vets come up and, um, let's just say do some things, right? Right. Um, you know, Patrick Wisdom has huge holes in his game, but has tremendous power. Um, but he's never going to hit for average. He's not going to get on base, ton of strikeouts, but he's going to, he's going to hit balls over the fence, right? Um, Frank Schwindel was, was kind of a revelation and I kind of think it might be real. Right, I, I'm actually yeah. I'm actually kind of comfortable with Frank Schwindel as my everyday first baseman if I'm the Cubs. Um, like center field right now is probably Rafael Ortega, who did some things, right? But I'm not sure I'd trust that one as much. Um, if they did something weird and got Correa, would you be looking at Nico Horner in the outfield and Madrigal at second base? So. 
just talking to uh, guys in the front office and talking to David Ross over the course of last season, I think they really admired the way the Giants went about things. And David Ross has kind of gone a 180 here over his, uh, you know, two seasons as manager. He came into 2020 uh, kind of saying, like, I want that set lineup. I have mm. everyday guys. I want to lock this in. Now, granted, this is a very different team than the one he had to start 2020. Still, he he went through last season and really the, the way the Giants played, the way they utilized matchups. Now, it's not just left, right platoon, right? We know there's deeper things when you when you play guys against certain uh, pitchers and the matchups are are, you know, pitch type, uh, you know, swing path, all those different things that that come into play uh, and how they match up well against different pitchers. I think he, you you're not going to see a lot of these guys. I mean, they're they're the locks that guys that play every day, right? There's, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you're Nico and Madrigal and Wilson Contreras, and if they do sign Correa, uh, that they'll those guys are playing every day, right? If Ian Happ looks anything like he did the last month month and a half of the season, he's playing every day, uh, but. There's he's gonna Ross really wants to play the matchup. So mm-hmm. if it makes sense to I think I think it, depending on who the starting pitcher is for the Cubs, you may see Nico Horner at second base a lot uh, on certain nights, and and Madrigal will either sit or be the DH. Uh, you know I I kind of agree with you on Schwindel. At least I want to see it. I I think he has earned the opportunity to get that yeah, chance sure. to play every day, and let's see what it is. It's not whatever it was, 160, 170 weighted runs created plus. It's not going to be that, right? We, we have to accept that that was two great months that close to his peak probably, but uh, that's not going to be a six-month season for him. If it is, hey, uh, <laughs> I'm happy him. to be proven yeah. wrong. Yeah, good. It seems like a great dude over the two months I covered him, so he deserves it. But, uh, you know, give Schwindel a chance here, but play the matchups. With with, with wisdom, play the matchups. Fastball, uh, guys that can't throw the fastball up in the zone, yeah, let him face the, those guys all day. Uh, Ortega, play him against righties, you know? Uh, I think they signed... Uh, is it Harold Ramirez? Now this is, yep. I've been so out of, and, and I believe he's a righty that can handle center. So if, if his offense comes around, have him face the lefties and Ortega, uh, uh, face the righties, you know, and, it, and Michael Hermosillo might be a perfectly good right. Yeah, there. Exactly. I almost forgot about him. Chicago kid, also a great dude that, uh, uh, made some swing changes Huge over the course changes, of the year. Yeah. yeah. And he, and they were high on him, uh, and uh, coming into last year. So get him the right matchups. I mean, there's a lot of guys that you can say, like, get them the right matchups and maybe you find something. Now, not every single one of them is going to work. Like what happened with the Giants last year, you can't just follow that model and say like, yep, I got my platoon guys and every single one. I mean, there's egos you have to deal with. One guy has two bad weeks and the other guy that's in a platoon is going to say, like, I'm in there every single time my number's called and I'm crushing. And this guy's, you know, out here striking out every other at bat. And and I need like, give me those every day at bats. Like, you know, right. right. I don't I don't know how you balance those egos. That that was a great job by San Francisco doing that. It's because it worked. Uh, it, if it doesn't work, if it, like eventually egos get in the way, you can be the greatest guy ever. You want that playing time. You want to play every day. So it's it's hard to really balance that. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see 
when this roster is finalized, when they go into spring training with the full roster, the moves are done. And then the when the season starts, I want to see how Ross handles this because I know he wants to kind of balance things out. And, and I think he believes in rest now, like getting guys days off, get grinding through the season and just pushing through and having guys start 150 games uh, really doesn't make as much sense as it used to. It's not the way things are like load management is a hot, was a hot, you know, uh, term in basketball, what a decade ago. And I think it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be something they talk about in baseball a little bit more too. Do you think the Cubs are doing it? Well, they're in a weird spot. Like you said, no one's going to say they're a favorite to make the playoffs, right? No one's going to say that. Um, you know, we have not at Fangraphs ranked their done their prospect list yet, but when we do, it will, as, as you know, be loaded at the top with teenagers. Yeah. You know, with, with players who are not going to be at Wrigley Field this year or next or next, right? The, 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 the internal solutions are not coming. And obviously, you know, we could line up, you know, all of the exciting teenagers they have, and they have as many as any team in baseball. There's going to be attrition, obviously, you know, yeah. some of those guys ain't going to work out because that's how life works. Um, but like, do you see a path for them kind of to becoming more relevant in the standings this season? You're asking, I just in general, just the short term, the very short term. Yeah. Yeah, So do you feel like, you know, do you, you know, right now, would you in for 2023, would you say it's going to be the same thing where they're not a disaster, but they're just okay. Yeah. My, in my head and based, you know, my educated, uh, opinion on this, based on a lot of conversations is they're not ruling out 2022, 2023. Uh, it, this isn't 2000 and what was it? 12 and 13, right? Mm, uh, this isn't this is, yeah. They're, they're not going to tank for high picks. Are they going to go into the next few years as playoff or world series favorites? I don't think so. I'd be surprised. Uh, like I just said, you can't hope for the, uh, San Francisco Giants season, right? I mean, you can hope for it, but you can't bank on the San Francisco Giants season, but maybe they have one of those in them. Right. I I just don't I, Yes, I I think the realistic path to success is this. Uh, you know, you have to hope that some things go right in the next couple of years that you hit the, uh, Theo Epstein talked about parallel tracks when he was hired. Uh, you have to build up the system and try and compete at the big league level. Uh, and and every season is sacred. He he just said that to the media <laughs> and to the fans. Uh, they, they rebuilt and they weren't trying that hard to win. Uh, right. Granted, they didn't have as much money as they thought at times to go after guys like you, Darvish, or uh, get the finishing touches on a Cespedes deal. We can, that's a different subject. But, but my point is, I think that they're going to actually do that. And I think the Stroman sign signing is a sign that that's accurate, but I don't want fans to get too optimistic and think that's a sign that they're shifting gears. Do you think there's a splash in them between now and opening day, like another free agent splash, or do you think it's more just going to be filling in around? I think it's going to be, I think it's look, I think you take Jed Hoyer at his word when he said they're looking for value deals. Now that's hard to interpret for some people, but that's what the Marcus Stroman deal was. That's a three-year deal for a guy that comes out 
every game and and is a above well above average pitcher year after year after mm-hmm. year right and he, they didn't think the market was valuing him properly and they pounced now if for some reason the market doesn't value uh, someone like Carlos Correa properly the Cubs will pounce, but it may not be someone like Carlos Correa. They they need to add another name-ish. I don't know if it's a superstar, <laughs> but they need to add one more, I think, on offense at least. And like I said, a defender, infield defender would be uh, really uh, great for them. I think that would make a lot of sense. So I think there is another name, uh, another solid name. I'd be surprised if it's the Correa level, which is obviously the best of the best. Uh, but there, there's another move in there. And I think the, the real timeline is they, they showed us what the timeline is with the Stroman signing. He has an opt out after two years. So it's two or three years. That's when they're going to be back just pummeling everyone with their money and going, here's the top free agent. We're going after him. We're going after the third free agent. And we're going after this, these guys for depth. And they're going to be spending because Owen Casey's coming up and, mm-hmm. you know, and Kevin Alcantara is coming up. And here's another thing, Kevin, and, I, and I, I'm sure it's so hard to do. And, and it, I'm going to say it and make it sound easy, but they need to scout the hell out of their system Yo, and no figure out who they love and who they really trust. This kid gets it. This kid's improving every day. This kid is taking to our plans and, you know, executing everything. This kid, you know, he, he it's not clicking as quickly. We know this. Okay, so how do you speed up that timeline? You package these guys that may be putting up big numbers at low A or, or high A, and, and you get a, a guy that's pre-arb, you know. You get a guy, uh, you know, a team that's trying to move someone that – uh, you know, doesn't fit their timeline, right? And you speed up your timeline. So it's not just when you say there's a bunch of teenagers, you're 100% right, obviously. I mean, we, I, I like this system and I like, and it's the way you kind of have to go when you're trading players now uh, because you're not going to get top 100 prospects in all likelihood, especially for expiring deals. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, so get the guys that you think can be top 100 prospects in a year or two or three. Right. Because they did. I mean, how many did they get? How many future potential future top 100 guys did they get? I mean, there's a lot. Truck if you loads, talk yeah. about. But yeah. So that's I mean, they could have the be- they could have they could have the best system in baseball by the end of this year. They could have they could stall and it could drop. Right. Because that's the risk with teenagers. But right. it, it's I think it was the path they needed to take. You needed to take risks. Otherwise, what are you taking like? triple-a fodder that you know this guy will be in the big leagues but he's a bench guy uh, i don't know if that makes sense I, I think you needed to take the risk they haven't taken these risks in the past and that probably cost them a little bit uh during those uh glory years and really building the system out but uh, i like this path i like that they're taking risks and i like a lot of these names i i'm I, I'm I'm inter- I'm very curious. I, I have a ton of respect for what you guys do with the prospect list over at Fangraph. So I'm very curious to see uh, how many guys end up on, on this top 100 and and what what the final rankings are. Because I know I know I believe Eric's pretty high on someone like Kevin Alcantara, and, yeah. and I just I hear great things about him, uh, and he's interesting. Owen oh, Casey's interesting to me. Christian Hernandez. I'm waiting to for him to come stateside. I mean, I, the list goes on and on. There's a lot of interesting names. Yeah, they have a ton of guys who, like like you said, are either going to be or have the certainly have the potential to be top 100 guys. It's it's it's, it's a lot of tech stocks, basically. Yeah. Yes. Um, and some of them are really going to hit. Um, before we take a break, uh, real quick personal note. Um, 
I was uh, on on Saturday. I was in the morning. I was on my computers. Most of us do on a Saturday morning. Um, and I got a text, and the text came from uh, John Sanders, and only it was not from John Sanders. It was from his his wife, who uh, let me know that John Sanders passed away um, uh, due to cancer. He was 73 years old. Uh, John was uh, very, very early in my career writing about baseball, one of my very first go-to scouts, um, and was such a wonderful man. And John... Um, has if you look him up on Baseball Reference, he has kind of a, a field of dreams career. Uh, he appeared in one major league game as a pinch runner, so never got <laughs> never never got to the plate. Um, he is in the Nebraska Sports Hall of Fame, um, and is and and was uh, one of the greatest athletes to ever come out of Nebraska. He was a a state football champion as a quarterback and place kicker. Um, he was a state champion as a baseball player. Um, he set track and field records, I believe, in the discus. Um, the Kansas City Royals or the A's, I think the Kansas City A's at the time signed him. Whitey Herzog went to his house and signed him. Um, he had a, a, a like I said, a, a brief professional career, um, the one major league game. He later went on and, and coached the Nebraska Cornhuskers baseball team for about two decades um, and then went to pro baseball. Uh, he managed in the Red Sox system for a little bit. He was a scout with the Dodgers for about a decade. Um, and just this wonderfully, one of the nicest human beings I've honestly ever encountered and, and always like intellectual curiosity was always, you know, kind of his thing. And he always, you know, he was the first person to, to say this to me. And it's something I've used, um, throughout my career in baseball of, I've, um, I, I just want to get players right. Um, and so whatever helps me get players right, that's great. And, and he was, you know, a guy who, you know, was in his sixties at the time and, and, read fan graphs and baseball prospectus and, and would call me because he wanted to understand like a metric or something more advanced. And he always understood it perfectly fine. Um, but uh, one of the nicest human beings I've ever met with, and, and it was just kind of heartbreaking to, to hear that he passed away. And so just a quick, just RIP to John Sanders, just one of the, one of the best baseball people I've ever dealt with. Um, and a guy who I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of. And so I just wanted to talk about him for a little bit. That's all. Sounds like a full and great life. Wow. Great life and a great dude. And so RIP, John, you'll be missed. Um, we'll take a break. We will talk to Joel Sherman about labor, and you will hear him say the word poop. Uh, and then we'll come back, read your emails and all that good stuff. So stick around.
Welcome back to the show. As we've talked about in the past, it's very hard to create consistent baseball contact content rather when there's no baseball, and all we have to talk about is labor. And so joining me now is someone who's on top of the labor stuff. One of my favorite people when it comes to the big, big names. Joining us live from the the beautiful New York City. It's Joel Sherman of the New York Post. Joel, how are you? I'm good, Kevin. Hopefully I'll honor such a nice uh, introduction. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I, people say stuff about, people don't like you because you're a national writer. And I always go, yeah, Joel's a good dude. He's got good politics. He's a good hang. I like Joel. <laughs> well, let's see if I prove that over the next X number of minutes or not. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to start at the beginning in the sense that I, you have been one of the more, um, for lack of a better term, pessimistic voices on this. You know, I, I even you know, a month after the season ended and we were clearly heading for a lockout. Um, your stance was we probably weren't going to have games until May. Um, maybe you're not looking as pessimistic as you once did, but but what, what created in your mind kind of that early level of pessimism? Well, uh, just generally knowing uh, the people on both sides of this and having lived through uh, the 2020 negotiation to try to get the sport back on the field. I know the commissioner, Rob Manfred, said that uh, because of the pandemic, they were never playing at his uh, press conference on Thursday. He said they were never going to play more than 60 games anyway because of protocols. But the reality is the two sides at that point never had a greater reason to work together, right? They had a common enemy, a pandemic that was sweeping the globe and killing people and making people sick. And they could have unified around that. And optimistically, at some point, it looked like they could start the season by maybe the July 4th weekend, start America's pastime, wrap themselves in all the patriotic stuff that I might not like. I might not dig, but most of America digs. And, uh, you know, like try to play 80, 90 games and find it. And they couldn't. They couldn't unify against the pandemic. And so my thought was, if they couldn't unify against the pandemic, why were they going to unify now when they both clearly have such entrenched positions, uh, when the personalities don't mesh at all? So I, I, I've been fairly pessimistic until these two sides, these group of people, again, Rob Manfred mentioned at his press conference, uh, you know, that he had done four negotiations uh, without uh, labor delay. Uh, that was mainly done with a different group from the Players Association. When I see these two sides dance uh, successfully, I'll believe these two sides could dance successfully. <laughs> uh, you know, I, we kind of delayed the recording. Normally record on Thursday, recording on Friday, because I kind of wanted to react to the, the Rob Manfred press conference. I was expecting, I was wrong, uh, a bit of fire and brimstone. And we didn't get that. We got um, a, lot of, a lot of PR speak and... For me, it seems like, you know, I understand what he was saying and why he was saying it, but it seems like he was kind of kicking the can down the road, really just 48 hours as, as the two sides are going to meet on Saturday. And it feels like at that point, he will be able to, again, on a PR level, say, well, the player said no to our really good offer, and now we have to delay spring training. It's all their fault. Is, is that kind of the strategy you saw as well? Well, you know, a lot of what's gone on, I've tr since since neither side actually tells me what their true negotiating stance is, I try to play optimist pessimist, right? If I were a pessimist, I would say exactly what you said uh, that he wanted a you know if they're going to jump into the acid bath, they just as soon jump into the acid bath with the players and say, hey, we tried this again, and you know at least damn all of our houses instead of just our house. 
if I was an optimist, and again, I'm generally not an optimist on this issue, but if I were an optimist, I would say the owners got together yesterday and some level-headed part, uh, I'm actually got it uh, together for 72 hours this week, and some level-headed part of the group said, you know, is it on paper, do we, could we save money because we sell so few tickets in April because cold weather in the Northeast, uh, school's not out yet, yet we pay the players the same amount in April that we'll pay them in May, June, July, that, that getting down to 140 games wouldn't be the worst thing for us. Uh, but some level heads said not being on the radar, not having normal spring training, disrupting our minor league pipeline again because of the 40-man roster guys who won't be able to play minor league baseball to begin the year. Like, this is all destru destructive. We're not on the lips of anyone. People are talking Super Bowl, NBA trade deadline. You know, this isn't a three-channel world anymore. People could move away from us a lot easier. Let's not mm -hmm. push ourselves into Siberia any further. Let's come to, you know, let's really make a strong offer, which I assume has to include something about CBT, the luxury tax. And let's see if at least it stimulates a back and forth. You know, I'm uh, anybody who uh, reads me or sees me on the network knows I, I am a huge fan of the NBA. I love professional basketball. And Jeff Van Gundy has a saying that he uses all the time when he, people are talking about passion and he says, don't tell me about it. Show me it. You know, we're watching the mm -hmm. game. You don't have to tell me you care. You could show me you care. And so Saturday, when MLB makes an offer, they could show by making some significant movement in some area. I would say specifically CBT, the luxury tax. Show me that there's a pathway to get this done in shorter order and have most of spring training and a undisrupted major league regular season schedule uh don't don't tell me about it well i mean to, to, to flip the clock back about whatever seven to ten days when um you know major league baseball requested federal mediation players said no and then major league baseball said they're not going to counter and now it seems like they are going to meet on saturday so something has changed no well i think that they wanted to try the mediation path again this is you know, Kevin, we, we, we're trying to apply what we believe. And that's why I tend to, to try to play optimist pessimist. Was the mediator a publicity stunt pessimist or were there really people within the group saying you don't get the federal government involved as a publicity stunt? You do that because you think the marriage cannot be saved without a marriage counselor. And we have to go get a counselor to see if we can bridge this gap. So... They offered that and it was turned down at that point. Why for them? Why not? We're just about to meet all 30 ownership groups at one time. Let's get together. Let's see where the group is. The majority of the group is as far as what is the will to move in a variety of areas and then make an offer. So that's where we are. And that's why I think Saturday is such a key day, Kevin, because Look, the, the, the Players Association has felt a lot of these offers so far are MLB going, do you want 50 cents? And they go, no, that's not enough. And they go, how about a half a dollar? And, you know, at this point, they want to hear something more than that. They feel like there's a lot of 
robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, the the the, the minimum wage is going up, uh, draft pick compensation for free agency is going away. But but if you don't balance that with some real like like loosening up of what's being offered on the CBT, you're giving us a dollar on one end and taking away a dollar on the other. And I think they feel like like like. That's why I just think salary is important. Is there going to be real movement, especially on CBT? Do you think, I mean, obviously the owners met this week in Florida for, like you said, three days. Owners have various interests and various feelings on this. Do you think the owners are unified or do you think that if you sat down with them honestly at a bar and polled them that you'd have a pretty diverse set of people who really want this to end and people who really want them to stand very tight and are willing to really make this go south? You know, Kevin, I really think it's a great kind of uh, money shot question because I think the problems in our game, I know people always talk about it as uh, Players Association versus MLB, but I think the problems in our game is you know, warring sides as well. Big market owners versus small market owners. By the way, on the other side, when we try to come to understandable, successful rule changes, pitchers versus hitters. You know, and I, I, I often, I think we live in a more selfish country than ever before. This kind of like individualism, like my freedom is more important than the common good. And I think it trickles into our baseball where it's, uh, you know, what's what's going on with my team? What rules will favor it for my team? Big, middle, uh, small market. What will favor it for me? Uh, pitching versus hitting as opposed to kind of what's, you know, like who's sitting and deciding what's good for the overall game. I'll, I'll, I'll say this. You know, Fred Wilpon was a vilified owner in New York, and I'm not here to defend his time as owner of the Mets, it certainly was not pretty uh, what what happened. But I think people who were ever in a negotiating room when, when it came to MLB would say to you that Fred Wilpon often would vote against his best interest for what he believed was right for the game. And um, I always had a little soft spot for Fred for a variety of reasons. It included that. And I wonder how many owners and then how many players are ready to say like what's kind of like good for the overall game because kind of what's good for the overall game takes us from a 10 billion dollar industry maybe to a 12 billion dollar industry and then instead of fighting over 10 billion you're fighting over 12 billion it's a bigger piece of the pie and what are you doing collectively to make the game more appealing to more people you know Kevin I have two children uh teenagers uh Everything they kind of have, you know, an apartment, their food, their clothing comes from the fact that I cover this sport. And right. they, they, they won't watch an inning of baseball this year. Not because we're not playing. I assume at some point we'll get a CB, uh, uh, CBA and we'll play because everyone isn't going into plumbing supplies. But because they don't find it interesting. And uh, we have to do it. If, if my children don't find it interesting, that scares me about where the game is going. Uh, I Rob talked for about half an hour, if you include the questions he took. Um, and he said a lot of things that were just kind of like, well, okay, I get why you're saying that. I don't necessarily agree with it. But he did get understandably eviscerated for saying that owning a baseball team is not as financially sound as just simply investing in the stock market. Now, when you get involved in these kind of companies that are worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, 
it's pretty easy to manipulate a spreadsheet and go, look, we didn't make much money. But, you know, realistically, when you look at franchise values and what a team is purchased for and then what it is sold for years later, uh, it exceeds the stock market by, you know, things that are measured in logarithmically, if you will. Um, do you think that he genuinely believes that or he's simply using that as a talking point? And if he is using it as a talking point, do you think that he can really sell people on believing that when it's demonstrably not true? Well, I think if it was a talking point, it was not a successful talking point. Uh, I, I, I would say we all have experiences in life. If you buy a bad car, you do everything you can to get out of that and try to get another car. If you buy a bad house, you try to sell the house. I'm sure all of the people who run the 30 organizations have probably been in deals that have gone south and you try to get out of it. Last I look, there wasn't a run on people trying to sell sports franchises in any sport, including in Major League Baseball. I have to assume that's because there's all kinds of accrued benefits, including, by the way, let, let, let's, let's, the, the, the team that sold most recently is the one in my town. The Mets sold for about $2.5 billion to Steve Cohn. Steve Cohn is one of the most famous, successful uh, financiers in the world, right? Runs his hedge fund. I mean, nobody knew who Steve Cohn was. Like, I mean, a very small percentage. <laughs> then you buy a baseball team and you become Steve Cohn, or you buy a basketball team and you become Mark Cuban, or, you know, like, you know, you're no, there's other stuff that becomes available to you when you own these sports teams. And it's lucrative enough in enough ways that we, A, don't see a run of people trying to sell it, but we do see a run of people trying to buy them when they become available. And so therefore, you know, there, there, there has to be a value both monetarily and also in other areas that make it valuable to own one of these franchises. So I, I mean, I just, I think crying poor when you own a major league team would be like crying poor if you had a yacht. Right, right. The yacht, the yacht cost me a lot of money. I got to fix the yacht. Um, Let's say Major League Baseball made you the marriage counselor. Have you ever been to marriage counseling, Joel? Uh, I have. Let me tell you, it's a horrible thing. It doesn't work. Um, but let's say Major League Baseball makes you the marriage counselor. And and you are sitting between the two sides on Saturday. What is kind of the one thing you would tell Major League Baseball and the one thing you would tell the players union? Hey, you got to move on this. So... One of them, what I would tell MLB, and I haven't been shy on the air and print in the New York Post is, and really goes back to 2020 a lot, is I think that central baseball has to show the players, hey, we're not trying to trick you here. I'm the commissioner of baseball. I work at the mercy of 30 owners. They're a very disparate group. They have different needs. They hired me. They could fire me at any point. I'm very, therefore, interested in making sure they make money and keeping especially the value of their franchises up. But within that realm, this sport doesn't work if the players don't thrive. And I, I recognize there's probably a lot of repair that needs to be done in this relationship for you to believe that I am a 
baseball fan and a fan of the players. And there's been kind of PR missteps along the way. But I actually believe that the sport works best when the players thrive. And I mean in every way. And I think, Kevin, you saw this. Your, your time in a front office bridges a point where teams wanted it. Like, like, yes, players wanted it. But also teams wanted the players to travel well, good hotels, good health care, whatever training is necessary. We're trying to, hey, I'm selfish. I'm trying to maximize performance. I'm trying to seduce people from other organizations to want to come to mine. And so it seems to me when it comes to the non, how I directly pay you, teams more than ever are treating players at a much higher level. And I would say that that should work for finance as well. Like, I don't think, and again, you worked in front office. I don't think teams, no matter what rules come out of this CBA, will pay players money they don't want to spend. So if there's about $4.2 billion spent right now on players, I almost feel like whatever the rules end up being, I don't know that it's going to be much more than $4.2 billion. Kevin, like, could it go to 4.3, 4.4? Yeah, those are decimals in all of this. Mm-hmm. But, like, I would want, like, I would try to do everything I could convey that this is not a zero-sum game. That's what's good for me must be bad for you. And... I want to believe that if the players are happy because they're being treated well on every level, including financially, that that is actually a benefit to ownership. That is not a negative to ownership. And we've created this paradigm where the, th- that only crushing the other team's spirit and finances is success. And I just, I honestly, now maybe this is my political view. Like, like I just wouldn't want to, I think happy workers make a better corporation. And I think MLB should try to do what it can to mend that fence because I keep going back to that the bigger issues is not how we're going to split the $10 billion, $11 billion. It's like, what are we doing to modernize our game, which includes, you know, dealing with pace and stuff, which is going to take real uh, collaboration, communication, and how do I forge that out of this CBA, which obviously is, again, becoming a land war in Europe instead of, like, like let's get to the bigger stuff. That's what I would believe for MLB. For the players, I would try to understand that there's going to have to be some open-mindedness about cooperation as well. Right now, we the both sides have done a terrific job of creating boogeymen, which is, ML, the clearly for the players, Rob Manfred is the boogeyman, right? He doesn't like us. He doesn't like baseball. He called the championship trophy a piece of metal. You know, all the stuff that you could build rhetoric around, right? For, for MLB, the boogeyman is Scott Boris, the agent. The belief, <laughs> the belief that he behind the scenes is the puppeteer here controlling how the union, the tactics and the end game for the union. If I believe both things, I would then argue and say, are there two people alive who are involved in more important finalized negotiations in the history of our sport than Rob Manfred and Scott Boris? I mean, they do know how to get to resolution. Like, if you believe this is Scott Boris, I mean, ultimately, everyone gets mad at Scott Boris because of the final number he gets for his player. He, In other words, he gets to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Rob Manfred has negotiated a lot of contracts. He gets to the finish line. Guys. Get to the finish line. There's nothing good about 
the perception, the viewpoint that's being given when I think, I don't know, tell me if you disagree, Kevin. I think the final agreement isn't going to look radically different to, from what they could get to if they decided we must have an agreement today. I don't, I haven't talked to anyone who expects this agreement to be some sort of like sea change in the structure of baseball. Um, I, I think it's, like you said, I think it's playing in the margins. I don't think it's going to be anything radically changed at all. But even if, if, if even if Major League Baseball genuinely believes that that they are negotiating with Scott Boris or or people who are being you know puppeteered by Scott Boris, why should that matter? It's just like this is who I'm sitting at across from the table. They're making a thing. Why should I care who the who's who's providing the message? I should just be reacting to the message. No, I I, I agree with you, Kevin, because I would say so. When you're asking about both sides, I would say there's a certain level of arrogance to decide who you should be negotiating against. Here, here's the reality. When we get out of this lockout, if you want Carlos Correa, you got to negotiate with Scott Boris. You don't get to say, well, you know, I have a much better relationship with this agency or that. If you want Carlos Correa, well, if you want the players here, either, and, and, and let's take Scott out of it. It isn't like MLB is throwing some party love fest about negotiating with Tony Clark and Bruce Meyer. Right. Like, right. They, neither side likes each other, but... You, they've got to get to a finish line. The real, I, I, again, I used the joke earlier, right? Like they aren't all going to go into plumbing supplies. At some point, we're going to play Major League Baseball. You know, is that 162 game season, 140, 100, whatever? At some point, we're going to get to it. And I think the ability of both sides, and I understand neither side wants to kind of give up leverage by saying, "Yes, I'm, fr I'm fretting about the big picture." But like, we are definitely, so the line I use all the time, Kevin, is both sides are so focused on the gold that they forgot the goose. And the thing is, if you took care of the goose, it would probably poop out a lot more gold. <laughs> um, I don't know if I could curse or not on your podcast. So oh, go God, you can believe I, me. You, you, can say, you, you can say whatever you want. Okay, so in that case, it would shit out a lot more gold. So, <laughs> um, so I, you know, like I said at the, at the very beginning of this, you were at kind of like, I don't think we're going to get going until May 1st. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough to ask you this. Since they're going to meet again in about 24 hours, and, and that's the most important day right now. I, I, and that's going to be in perpetuity. Always the next negotiation is the most important day. But, you know, right now, it would is the over-under for you still May 1st? Yeah, until I look, I, I want to be hopeful that the owners got together and said, hey, let's make a really meaningful move on something. You know, pay, you know, my, my colleague at MLB Network, Dan O'Dowd, said something that I fought a long time and he put words to recently, which is the vast majority of the Players Association is made up of people who are not arbitration eligible. And again, you worked in front office, Kevin, you know the numbers. The, the vast majority of players don't make it to arbitration. The vast majority of players don't make it to the six years of free agency. And so what happens if you came in on the front end and said, you know what? We're going to come in with a whole different concept of how we're going to pay minimum wage players. 
Like, like we're going to really jump it up. 700, 750, whatever. I'm the, on the balance sheet, we'd be talking about three to $4 million per year more per team, which is not a significant amount. And yet you're reaching out to the largest segment of the Players Association. And in some ways, you'd be calling out the Players Association because we know that they talk 1,200 members, but they believe for 50-ish years that if you make sure the top guys get taken care of, they'll be trickle-down. And I would argue, like Reaganomics, that doesn't really work anymore, um, that there isn't this level of trickle-down. But then let's take care of the vast majority of players. Like, make a big move on um, minimum wages. Make a big move on zero to three. I think it's pennies in the long run with a lot of benefits to both ends. Like, if you make a meaningful gesture there, I think they got to make a meaningful gesture on one end or the other, which is either minimum wage or CBT, the luxury tax. I think if we don't hear that on Saturday, that we're in for kind of that long slog towards missing regular season games. If they do, they make it much easier for the Players Association to make a meaningful move back to them. And, you know, this is the the question that you can't answer, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have any reason to think that they will make a major move on Saturday? Um... You know, honestly, I'm. I think you know me well enough. I don't dodge questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is one where I'm really, like, up until this week, I thought we, you know, we're just going to keep seeing one inch this way, one inch that way from both sides, because when we know that we need yards, probably miles. I am wondering. If enough people got together in Orlando among the ownership and said, guys, in my in my hood, in Dallas, if I'm the Rangers, if I in Houston, if I'm the Astros, in Chicago, if I'm the White Sox Club, nobody is talking about our sport. Nobody. Right. We've got to get back on the radar. And um and that owner, the ownership meeting, some some of the owners shouted down the Hawks. Historically, I'm always worried that the Hawks win. Um, I'm hoping that they didn't win in Orlando and that what we're going to see is an offer on Saturday that says to the Players Association, because, again, Kevin, you work in the front office, you know that even the negotiation for players... There's that moment where one side or the other says, well, how about this? And then you know that you could have a deal, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's how it really works. It's like you're talking two different languages, and then you say, well, what if we went from four years to five? Oh, well, if you did that, we'd be willing to do this. Okay, now we're actually negotiating. So what I would hope would come out of Saturday is MLB does something, because I think players want to play. Right. Sure, and so so I think that if they do something Saturday that forces the large portion of the twelve hundred membership and also allows Bruce Bruce Meyer, Tony Clark to realize that there's going to be a significant victory that they could stand on here, uh not minor victories, but significant, I think that we'll 
then then I'll be more optimistic that, okay, we're not going to start on February 15th or 16th, but we'll get to spring training with enough time to have close to a standard spring training, and then we'll, we'll, we'll play a 162-game season. If it feels like inches again, Kevin, then, then you know, I think we're in for the slog. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you this. I've asked everyone this that I've talked to about the labor stuff. Um, you know, you're, you and I are not young people. And Why, we thank rem- you for that. We remember 1994. I even remember 1980. It's actually one of my earliest baseball memories is 1980. Um, but we remember like real bad work stoppages. And, you know, I, at that time, I really felt like the, the, the public reaction to those was just that the players were spoiled millionaires, the players were spoiled millionaires, and they're getting paid to play a kid's game and the players are spoiled millionaires. And I do think, I, you know, I, I honestly think if you polled 100% of fandom, most people would still be mad at the players and not the owners. But I do think um, the vibe has changed and there is a lot more support for the players. And I'm not sure or I'm not convinced that Major League Baseball understands this yet. Do, what are your feelings on that? I think you're right. I think there, there, that, again, like I would wonder what percent of the ownership is, let's use a year, 70 or older, that isn't maybe sophisticated about social media and don't doesn't realize that kind of messaging is different now, unifying around messaging is different, um, and also that there is this kind of a greater anti-establishment, you know, screw the man that is fed by social media uh, than ever before, probably in our country's history, certainly the ability to do it quickly, right? Like, uh, like, like if I felt one way and a guy in Idaho felt one way in 1994, I had no idea that guy felt that way. Now I can know instantly, and now we're a party, we're aligned. And I think that there's certainly a lot more feeling for, quote-unquote, let's call it the underdog in here, the, you know, the non-owner. And, uh, I, I, I do think that probably MLB has been slow to recognize this. I, cause I, I would say because tactically, I think they thought we'll do the lockout and just dead air will motivate movement. And clearly dead air for a couple of months didn't motivate movement. Do you enjoy covering the story? No, I hate it. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, look, just... I, I, I actually try to tell this to both. So, so one of the things, Kevin, if we're going to play some, no pun intended, inside baseball, is what I, when a piece of legislation comes out, same piece of legislation, AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene see it completely differently, right? Like it's the same words on the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Well... I'll write something about this and I will get a phone call from both sides within, sometimes within five minutes of it being posted. And it's as if I wrote two different columns. Like, and I think one of the things that both sides don't appreciate is that both sides are doing it. Like complaining that the same piece is biased. Right? For one side or the mm-hmm. other. Which generally tells me I'm probably doing my job well um, because they're both complaining. Uh, they just 
see the world so differently. So there's kind of that. And I, you look, that's part of life. If you cover a car crash, everybody sees a car crash differently also. The other thing, just selfishly, is these stories don't traffic well. Like there is some science. We're talking about social media. Oh, is that true? That we, 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 we know that like, because Kevin, I, I mean, even me, like ultimately, do I really give a shit like if the luxury tax threshold begins at 220 or 227 or 230, like who cares? Like fans want to know. Like I feel like I could write this every day. We are further away from baseball today than we were yesterday or we're closer. And that's it. And that would be suffice for 90 plus percent of fans. They don't care about the minutia. Now, the people negotiating certainly care about the minutia, but there's very little bang for the buck doing this. And I, I would say this is there was fury on both sides, like during, like, especially 2020, right? Because there was no other game in town. Like, there was no NFL, NHL, NBA, anything. Nothing else was going on. The world was shut down to the pandemic. So right. if you wanted to be covering baseball in real time, you were covering the negotiation. And personally, I covered it in 2020, like I like a Yankee Red Sox series at Fenway Park in September, because there was nothing else. If you wanted to stay vital and vibrant in a newspaper, you did it. Like I've written a hell of a lot less about it this time around, because like first of all, there's other things to put in the newspaper. And second, it's not that interesting beyond the, did we move the puck closer to the front of the net to score or not? I mean, that's it. That's what fans care about. This, And then I think once it's settled, once it's settled, I think a fan wants to know, how does the, 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 the larger points affect my team? Like if it's a higher luxury tax, you know, in my town, like does that help or hurt the Mets and Yankees? You know, like draft pick compensation going away, does that help or hurt? Like, oh, there's going to be a DH in the National League. How are the Mets going to deploy that? I think that's what fans care about. Fans are my readers or my viewers. So I try to remember when there's other things going on to stay broader as opposed to 2020 when we kind of went finer because like what else was there to cover? Well, Joel, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to us about the labor situation and helping fill the podcast that needs content at this point. If you want to follow Joel on Twitter, you can do so. He is at Joel Sherman one because there is only one Joel Sherman. Joel, thanks for coming on. All right, Kevin. Thanks for having me.
podcast thanks to joel sherman for joining me this morning to talk about labor Sadev, you cover the chicago cubs for the athletic do you just kind of i assume when it comes to, to labor stuff you just kind of say well that's droughts and rosenthal's world is that correct yes yeah i i get my information from them and uh and they, i think they do a pretty damn good job of it with it so 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 what are your thoughts on what's going on i, I mean I like selfishly I just want it to be over but I know I mean <laughs> you know that's not that's not the right way to look at it and and you know we've been covering I've been talking to players about the way their service time has been manipulated and and the way things work for years now so I understand they they want some things to go their way and and from everything that we've read and from the people we've talked to and from uh, you know everything we hear it, it doesn't sound like owners are budging much and i think that that's what's frustrating to me it's like they don't need to go all the way to the player's side but to not to everything from everything that i've read from what i understand every single proposal that they make comes with another little twist that just mm. basically neuters that proposal and makes it irrelevant right and then you have stuff like the other day when when manfred's telling us that it's not that you know, profitable to own a team and stuff like that really makes me mad. It's like, right. The the monstrably untrue thing. Yeah. I I don't like being, 
talked down to. I don't like being treated like I'm stupid. And owners do that repeatedly, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. It's not something, this isn't a one-off thing. I can't tell you how many times we've had interviews with owners and, and an owner will say something and I'm just baffled that they'd say it that way. Like, Oh, oh, you have to deal with arbitration. Oh, I didn't know that exists. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the, their salaries rise. Thank you for explaining the, the system that I've been covering for the past decade plus. Like you want to like, we write these things. We, you're, you're acting like we don't explain these things to the reader. So you don't need to talk down to us and explain things to us. And you certainly don't need to flat out lie and expect that we're just going to take your lies. This isn't the, you know, this is a different time now. And I thought uh, Passon wrote it well. Like, you know, back in the 90s when we were dealing with this stuff, I, I think things swayed towards the owners a lot and, yeah i talked you know. to joe about that just and i still think like if you polled i said this if you polled all baseball fans i still think the owners would win if you will yes. they'd be in favor but i just it's not nearly at the level it once was yes yes i i i agree with that and you run into it whether it's on twitter or the comment section uh and you'll see some people like kind of defending the owners and they they just regurgitate these talking points that just aren't real like yeah, i don't know if they're defending the owners. owners as much as they don't like the players in this very weird kind of like the still like you know oh i'd play this game for free but well, right. no one wants to see you play the game because you're not very good at it <laughs> yes well it's the same thing i mean to a much lesser degree we like the writers deal with it right if like we say one thing i have to like caveat any complaint that i have about my job like i have to always yeah, make sure because i don't want anyone to ever i love my job i wouldn't no i am not trading my job with you your job sucks i want my job i love it but and then I'll explain like what is frustrating me like I don't want it to ever even come across that I don't love my job and that I want you know your nine to five job that uh, I've you know I've had a taste of that world and it is not for me so like it's there's this yeah there's definitely this you have a dream job how dare you complain about it you're paid millions of dollars how dare you not just take that millions of dollars and go play Uh, you know there's something about things being fair and and you know there's an other there's the other side to this of the billionaires that are you know trying to manipulate a situation that they've they've been winning for far too long now you the the team you work for um has one of the more that's the word i'm looking for here interesting owners in the rickets um have has he have they been especially vocal first of all it was very during manfred's presser they said that that um, Ricketts presented on the blockchain NFT, NFT, and my first reaction was, "Well, of course he did." Um, but like, has 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 Ricketts is not has been a vocal owner in the past. Has he been vocal through all this? Not through this, no. Um, I mean, he it, he had that quote that everyone uses during. Uh, I think it was before the 2020 season started. Biblical losses, right? He talked about the yes, biblical losses. One of my favorite quotes, and you know that's that's going to haunt him forever. Uh, he said some things in the past that I think he, he was much more talkative early on, but then he realized, oh, wait, the media is going to jump on certain things I say. I have to be very, very careful. And uh, he's not he, he talks about once a year now to the mass media, like to the Chicago media uh, at large, uh, I believe maybe twice a year if you. If I'm remembering correctly, I think it's it's always spring training, the beginning of spring training, and then there'll be 
small chance that he'll talk at Cubs convention sometimes. Mm -hmm. Outside of that, he's not going to let the Chicago media uh, gather around him. And I honestly can't remember the last time we spoke to him because of the pandemic. So it must have been before the 2020 uh, spring training, like right at the start of 2020 spring training. Uh, So it there may be a chance I missed something, but that's what my memory is. Uh, that's what I'm remembering. Um, okay, musical guest. You just heard a song by Rid of Me returning to the show. This is from their full length, uh, their first full length, uh, which is called Traveling. Uh, came out a couple of months ago to rave reviews. Uh, Stereo Gum had one of their songs as one of the five best songs of the month, myself. And uh, Rid of Me is really great. Good ship friends of the show. Uh, any band from Philadelphia is good with me. I uh, learned more about them at ridofme.bandcamp.com. It's email time. Are you ready for emails? Let's do it. First email comes from Chris. Chris says, how do clubs evaluate and hire minor league coaches? It seems like minor league coach contracts don't last long. So is there a detailed evaluation process from the big league club on their performance? Or is it more just trying to find people who want the job considering the low salary? Are minor league coaches evaluated based on their ability to develop players on their overall win-loss record? Is the evaluation process different if the big league club owns a minor league team, meaning performance may matter more than putting people in the seats? And if a club has a particularly prospect-laden team and they seem to perform well under a certain coach, does the club try to move those coaches up to higher levels with players to ensure future success? Um, that's a lot of questions, Chris. Yeah. Um, let, those are good questions. I they like are good them. questions. Let, let's get in front of something real quick. No one judges their minor league staff at all on overall win-loss record. When you go to a minor league game, they're not necessarily trying to win. Um, they like winning. Winning's fun. They 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 want their team to score more runs than their opponents. But, you know, there are little things that you see there where they are definitely not always putting themselves in the best position to win. If you have a prospect and you see him as a potential leadoff man and he is hitting leadoff for you and he's hitting 210 – you know what he's going to do tomorrow? He's going to hit leadoff because that's what you're trying to turn him into. Um, he's not going to get benched because he's struggling because that's not going to do anything for his development. So guys play. If you have you know some reliever with a 6 CRA but you think he can turn to a real reliever, he's going to keep coming out of the pen in real situations. Um, and the other thing is just win-loss record does not fill seats in the minor leagues. The minor league is a, an experienced sell. Uh, whether the team win their, wins or loses, it doesn't matter. It does not move the attendance bubble at all. Um, it, it, people go for like the family cheap baseball experience. They don't really pay attention to the standings. I imagine that 90% of a minor league crowd has no idea where that team sits in the standings of the low A Southeast or whatever the hell it's called these days. Um, it's player development. If you talk to GMs, ask what's the really, what's the toughest part of your job? They would say managing my player development staff. Cause it's a, it's huge. It's B it's spread out throughout the country. Cause you have your minor league. And not to mention the world where you have your complex with Dominican. Um, I think, you know, from personal experience, I thought the Astros really excelled in player development. And it took four or five years and some really aggressive moves to get everyone on the same page and to get like a singular player development staff working all and, and everyone kind of, you know, pulling in the same direction, if you will. It's a huge, huge challenge. Um they all do it because they love doing it. The pay isn't great. A lot of them, you know, a lot of them are players who, like people you've heard of, and a lot of them are, are definitely trying to build and or get to pension status, um, and or to maintain their 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 health insurance and things like that. But they all really do love it, and 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 really most of them really do put their hearts and souls into it. And and 
but they're evaluated solely on the development aspect. They're not, no one's paying attention to win loss and things like that. And when you move guys, it's a weird thing. Like when you move guys up, maybe like the development, the low A is more important than double A, but you do nonetheless, those guys move up the same way prospects move up. And you see, you know, in the world of guys who get to the big leagues, even though obviously a lot of big league managers don't do the minor league thing anymore. Um, you do see guys kind of move up obviously at a much slower rate, but it's just like, just like prospects, they're they're you know they're in a complex league, then they're in a full season league, then they're double A, then they're triple A, and then they're on the big league staff. Um, you know, a good example just because I know him is Omar Lopez, who's now the third base coach of the Astros. Who, you know, when I started was at Quad Cities, which was their low A affiliate, and then next thing you knew, he was at Corpus, which is their double A affiliate, and then he was in the big leagues. Um, so they move the same way, but they're evaluated solely on their ability to 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 coach and develop players. Nothing else really matters, and like. Like wins and losses are great, and and you know the Astros won a ton of minor league games. I have it's it's on my desk. It's the the rings I, I that I keep here. I have eight minor league rings here. Like then you have Astros won a ton, but um, development always comes first in both uh, how you look at the teams and how you judge your coaching staff. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the Cubs are completely overhauling their their player development, right? They or mm-hmm. they've done it. They they're doing that. They're in year. This will be year three, I think, of completely different player development. And it's it's been a process. It's, you know, I've talked to Patrick and I've talked to a lot of people about uh, the pluses and minuses. And what you talk about getting everyone like kind of pulling in the same direction is the process that they're kind of undergoing. Right. There are going to be people. Uh, and, and it's, uh, my job to talk to as many people as I can that don't agree with everything because Mm -hmm. there are ways that things are done, especially now that some people are like, that is crazy. And that is not how it works. And the Cubs are doing some things that are, that some people just don't like. They, you know, one of the things was they are, they, they focused on velocity gains uh, over the last couple of years. Now they're moving on because that that's in their opinion as, has worked uh, as they had hoped with certain guys it's worked and you shift to the next step. They, they want to focus one step at a time and not do uh, velocity gains, com- uh, you know, pitch shape and really command and control the ball all at the same time, right? They believe you, you kind of have to do this in a step-by-step process, mm-hmm. kind of max out velocity and, and figure it out from there, do the rest there. And now it's the execution and, and the pitch shape and all that stuff that they, they're going to work on. But there were coaches who were watching this uh, last year and saying, what is going on with my pit? Like, I can't throw this guy out there. And they had to talk to them and really explain to them. And this is what's going on. You have to throw that guy out there. He's working on this. He's not working on commanding that pitch perfectly right now. He's working on building that arm strength and, and learning how to throw, how his body moves properly. He's trying to learn that to maximize his velocity. How does my body move to maximize velocity. Once I get that, now, once that's second nature, now I can work on the other stuff. Mm. There are people that strongly disagree with this philosophy, right? So you got to figure out a way to get everybody on the same page. Uh, with the coaches thing, I think it's interesting because the Cubs, uh, I believe it's going to be Myrtle Beach, a ton of their uh, teenage position players are going to be at Myrtle beach. And from my understanding, they put one of the, one of the guys that they uh, think of highly, one of the hitting coaches out in Myrtle beach. Uh, 
someone that people talk a lot about is uh, Rachel Folden, right? Uh, mm. One of the one of the women coaches in the Cubs organization. I believe the only woman coach in the Cubs organization, but obviously we know there's many more all across baseball now, which is a great thing. People are like, how come she hasn't moved up? It, from my understanding is they're really high on her and, and she's resonated really well with the young kids and they want to keep her there for at least another year since there's so many young, talented players in the system and and she's doing great work with them. So yes, they, they do notice specific coaches. Yes, they do put them in specific places for specific reasons. And like Kevin said, it's all about player development. Win, win loss record. Hey, that's great. Uh, I think what I referenced before about a, a coach being annoyed by a pitcher and being unable to throw strikes, uh, th- there can be that competitive issue, right? For yeah, they want to win. Hate- yeah. So you have to really hammer home, get these philosophies uh, in place, make sure everybody, even if they may not love it, just like, hey, this is how we're going to win it. But I think until you see the results, which the Cubs haven't really had yet, especially on the pitching side, it's hard to really buy in for guys that aren't already bought in. So I'm curious to see. This is going to be a big year for so many reasons for the Cubs system. I'm really curious to see how the pitchers develop because we we talked in the previous segment about – I don't think we mentioned a pitcher, right? Right. <laughs> and and uh, it's, you know, there are a couple guys that I, I'm going to be watching and a, a lot that are very super raw that I'll, uh, I've been told to keep an eye on. Hey, I, I've been told for year after year after year to keep eye on certain guys and, and none of them have, have really produced outside of a small handful. So uh, it's, it's going to be really interesting, uh, Cubs specific, but player development in, in general is such a fascinating topic, one that I've, I've really dove into deeply and the Astros are well ahead of things as I think a lot of us know. And they were pointed out to me as, so one of the focus, one of the Cubs fo- uh, focal points is high performance right now. And there's this, there's this desire to get the super talented kid out on the field and show off your special new toy, right? That's a lot of organizations want to just, this kid's awesome. Like, Go send him out there and play baseball. Mm-hmm. And from my, and you can tell me if this is incorrect. I was told that the Astros are really good about this, about, hey, slow down. This guy needs to go work on high performance, get his body to this point. I know he's going to be great. And I know base, playing baseball is really important, but get his body to this point and then send him out there. Just be patient. And it's really hard because these guys have so much talent. And the only way to really improve your baseball skills is to get out there and play, right? You need to improve your baseball skills, but you got to get your body right too. You got to get your nutrition, right? You got to do all that stuff. So high performance has been a big point of emphasis and and they believe that there's some, some guys in the past that they didn't focus enough on, uh, that, that they, that could have, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Aramis Ottoman, I think is, is a good, uh, uh, point of reference of a guy that maybe they should have held him back and and really built up that body instead of sending him out and being aggressive with assignments. Mm-hmm. I, I think a good example of that is the instructional league, Paul instructional league, where the Astros have kind of become um, ostracized almost by the rest of the that whole West Palm area that has um, you know like five or six teams in it in the sense that 
um, you know, the teams all get together and organize and say, okay, this is our schedule. And the Astros said, yeah, we don't really want to play like four or five games. And, and the rest of the team said, well, you're playing a full schedule. You're not playing at all. And the Astros said, okay, we're not playing at all then. And we'll just have some scrimmages because for them, instructs was not about that. Like they would play right. some scrimmage and stuff, but that was not their focus at all. And, and I think that's a, a, a good example of it. But you also talked about, like, I'm sure the, the you know, the Cubs are happy with, with the progress they've made. And I'm also quite sure they're not anywhere close to satisfied. Right. Um, with where they're playing, it just takes that long. And when I, you know, when I say the Astros made some tough decisions, like that was, I'm talking about like, like personnel decisions, you know, it was very much like, this is what we're doing. And if you were not on board with it, then we're going to find someone who is. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't always, a, you know, a pretty thing the, 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 you know, it, it took five or six years and it came at a, at a tremendous cost in terms of turnover. Yeah, I have um, no idea if this is going to work for the Cubs. I, I, I'm i not saying I, I 100% agree with everything they're doing. I just am saying, like, they are making those tough decisions. And there are people that are, you know, that are going to move on, that are annoyed with what they're doing. And there are people that stick around and say, yeah, let's. I'm on board. Let's do this. Next email comes from Dan. Dan says, reading through the Pirates list of fan graphs, I noticed a number of their hitters had current hit tool, future hit tool gaps that were significant. I found myself surprised by this more than I thought I would be. I understand how power development, especially in-game power, takes time and can be a tool that improves over time. But how does one go from a 35 present to a 70 future hit? The hit tool feels like one of those mysteries of baseball. An ephemeral, he's got the knack for the barrel type of thing more than something that, something that will make huge jumps. Can you talk about hit tool projection and how it can be more than I know it when I seize it type of deal? Well, Dan, I know it when I see it. Um... <laughs> So here's this is the thing about hitting that I think is has gotten weird in the sense that the the gap between the way we understand pitching and the way we understand hitting is huge and and honestly kind of growing. So like pitch data is absolutely essential. Period. Like everyone uses it. Everyone leans on it. Everyone it, it drives decisions. It drives player development. It drives in-game stuff. And we have such wonderful pitch data. Like we have the velocity, the spin, the break measured in in you know millimeters. We know exactly what a pitch looks like, and we, so we know exactly the effectiveness of that pitch. And we do that because we have all these radar, we have all these wonderful equipment, we have the lasers, as I call them. The most important piece of hitting is hand-eye coordination, and we absolutely have no way. To measure that like we can't throw some sort of probe into some guy's brain and see how good that player's hand-eye coordination is and so it still is this ephemeral i know it when i see it um kind of thing because we don't the most important aspect of hitting we get and look we can we obviously measure outcome stuff like we measure you know exit velocities and contact rates and things like that and those are massively important very telling about what a player is but you know, the most important aspect to a pitcher is his stuff. And we are measuring that with incredible precision. And the most important aspect to a hitter is hand-eye coordination. And we can't measure that at all. And so we end up in this very, very strange gap. And, um, you know, it's a cliche in scouting and you hear it all the time. And the first time I heard it, I laughed, but I still think it's true. Is You know, I was sitting at a game we were watching a player and this, this scout who I really like, really a, a great scout, one of the better evaluators I've ever known, just kind of leans into me and he goes, you know what hitters do? They hit. 
<laughs> and it's kind of true. You know, hitters hit, and 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 it's a really tough thing to do. And when you know, we talk about the, those gaps between present and future, it's just because they have to adjust to stuff. Like it's, we don't. I don't think fans appreciate how good Major League Baseball players are. They're unbelievable. Um, and the, but the level of stuff and the level of stuff combined with command at the Major League level is overwhelming. Um, stuff is so much better at the big leagues than even AAA. Like, you know, AA, you get guys with raw stuff who can't command. AAA, you have all these vets who can really command it but don't have much stuff. And the big leagues, they have monster stuff and they can locate it. And so it takes time to kind of learn how to hit that stuff. And that's why you end up with these kind of gaps. But I'm hitting, like, we, you know, we can talk about, like, we talk about the swing changes Michael Hermosillo made, right? And they helped him make, become a better hitter. No question about it. But there, there's still so much, especially when compared to how scientific and accurate we are pitching, there's still so much of hitting that's still kind of a black box. Yeah, it's they. It, it's something I want to dive into more, but they, these guys that really measure stuff when it comes to the hitting side, there, there's certain things that they, they say that we know this works, we know this sure. doesn't work, right? There are mechanical uh, things, but I can give you the most beautiful swing in the world, and if you don't have hand-eye coordination, it's not going to matter. Right, right. And that's uh, that's why I always want to dive more into it with these guys that are super into the data. It's like, well, there, there's always going to be a little more nuance to that where you say this works and this doesn't because there are exceptions to the rule. Now, that's probably always the case, whether we whatever we measure, right? There's always exceptions to the rule, like Hunter Pence, it's the guy I always, right. I mean, so it's many of us example. go to, right? right? Like, it's just, it doesn't look right. If I saw him on a little league field, I'd be like, that kid can't hit. And and then he'd just blow me away, right? He'd prove me wrong instantly. But it's, so there's exceptions, but you can't, that doesn't mean that what you're saying is wrong, right? So right. so it's it's hard to, but I, I always find it interesting when the, the hitting guys, especially, because like you said, there's so much more information with the pitching when they tell me that like, well, I we know this, we know this, we can move on from this, that's not going to work. And I, 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 it's something I had a conversation recently with someone about that. And I'm like, I, I don't have time to dive into that right now, but I like, I'm making a note, like, we're going to talk about this again, because I'm very curious to how you can say that and the other point of view and how you get pushback on that, because I'm sure there are people that, especially old school guys that have been around that, that just strongly disagree in certain ways. Yeah. And, and there's all sorts of, you know, uh, language around this. And the thing that the, you hear a lot about are, are swing paths, swing yeah. efficiency, swing connection. Um, and all of those things, a good example, again, to go to Hermosillo, like all those things were dramatically improved by the Cubs staff, right? Right. They gave him a, a, a much better setup. He got into a swing much better and much and much quicker. Um, his swing path was dramatically improved, and all those things mattered, and made him better. But again, like I could do that with you, and you wouldn't hit. Yeah, right. You know? Well, there's and and that's something I'm I'm curious to watch as well. They we have Hermosillo. Uh, they believe they've figured something out with Nelson Velasquez, and I know the pitching wasn't up to snuff in in Arizona Fall League. And there are some holes there, but but I'm very curious to see the results going forward with him. Uh, there's some other guys. They believe that they they there are some things they can do with swings right now uh, that will give them a little bit of an edge when it comes to especially guys like uh, like Hermosillo, the the minor league free agent. I think they believe there's some guys that they're like we see these traits, these characteristics, and we have ways to work with that. Uh, I want you know 
that's right now that's talk like a lot of this stuff right because the cubs just haven't don't have the the years of of this current player development regime for us to see the results so i'm curious another thing that that i would keep an eye on if you're a cubs fan or just a a fan in general our last email comes from dan not the same dan as the last question and dan says what is stadium food like in the dominican winter league somehow i imagine local versions of all the things we have here but disabuse me if this is a ridiculous notion it's not super ridiculous um two american foods that have that are incredibly popular in the Dominican Republic are pizza and chicken. Um, like there are there are pizza and chicken places on every block in the in San Domingo, like KFCs and Domino's, um, and so that's what you get at the ballpark. Uh, their pizza has corn on it, and it's actually quite good. Um, but like that, it's it's like Domino's and like chicken fingers and fries and things like that. Uh, you talk about like ballpark food on an international basis. Um, the best is in Mexico City, where I had the best um, tacos al pastor I've ever had. We're at a ballpark in Mexico City. Um, and in Japan, where you can get all sorts of uh, grilled meats on sticks. And it's just the best in the world. Um, you travel to ballparks, and you obviously, I assume you usually eat in media dining. Is that correct? Yeah, it's... It's Are there parks where you go, you know what, I'm not going to eat media dining because they have something at the at the at the concessions I like so much? You know, there's I'm I the concessions can be tough sometimes because people hype up concessions and I'm just like, yeah, that like that's making me feel like a pretty rough after I eat it. Right. <laughs> like I there's sometimes stuff that I like I enjoy, but I you know, I'm I'm pretty like I, I'll just have like a, a hot dog at certain places. I don't even eat that much. Uh, ballpark food anymore because there was just so much that would like I'd I'd abuse myself with it that like (laughs) it'd be like six months of ballpark food and I'd be feeling awful and and you know my stomach was just raging Uh, so I don't I it's definitely more we grade the the media dining more than the ballpark food i i would say is at least my tendency it's like i like immediately i think of philly like i like philly because they have great they they have an ice cream like uh, every single time you can go get ice cream and there's all this different type of ice cream and Mm -hmm. and i love that like it's like okay it's uh, you know it's the fifth inning i've eaten my dinner and i want more ice cream i'm gonna go get more ice cream you know uh like little things like that stand out to me. The food isn't always great. Like Wrigley's improved significantly because we basically rage quit eating there. We're like, we're not eating this anymore. You're not feeding us properly and we're not eating this. We're not spending money on that. Like I'd rather just bring a peanut butter and jelly sandwich than eat what that was because that is not like, that's not fair to us. Like, (laughs) like we're, we're traveling and going all over the place and we come here to this tiny press box and you're going to feed us that. No, no, we won't eat it. Uh, so we boycott that uh, in 2019 and we got better food. Uh, of course, it didn't arrive until I think it's uh, midway through last season. I don't think we got it. And it is significantly better, but uh, it still has a, a I think, you know, like there like, there are certain places that you just go that are just like so hit, hit or miss. Like Milwaukee, mm-hmm. you're just like you're like, I'm no. I, like you just kind of walk by and you're like, don't want to be rude to these people that spent time <laughs> making this food. But 
yeah, no, I'll pass. And, and you just go find yourself, whatever it is. And, you know, and there's plenty to eat in Milwaukee too. Yeah, like they, they have they solid, have, they, really they have solid concessions. Yeah. They have solid concessions, like Wrigley concessions. It's like the same old stuff. Like there's, oh, there's yeah. an, there's a place and the, I'm pretty sure they stopped doing this because of the pandemic. And hopefully it starts back up again, but in the right field corner, uh, they have like a chef type stand where it's like rotating chefs, like famous chefs come and for home stands, they have like a, a specific menu and majority of the time that I've had that it's really good. That's like, but it's one stand, one spot of the ballpark. Uh, and I don't think it's advertised enough cause there's never, or people just don't want to spend that money or they just want a hot dog. Right. Because they're right. at the ballpark. Uh, but it's it's good. that has always for me that's always really good. It's just like a it's usually like a twist on ballpark food or like a nice a fancy like fried chicken sandwich. It's because it, these are like high level chefs that they have. So I, right. I, I, I making love that. really good ballpark food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But maybe it's because I I haven't like we, because of the pandemic I just haven't traveled as much and really explored yeah. ballparks as much. So it feels like it's been so long. So hopefully this season things are much closer to normal and and i'm traveling and and really exploring uh ballparks again because it it is a fun part of the job yeah kind of like a check out i mean san francisco always stands out but that's you know i think i just love that ballpark in the area around yeah, that so sure. much that it, it's just a positive experience like little thing like corpus christi it's still ballpark food but like corpus christi has a whataburger in the park oh that's good. That's, yeah, that's you know? always nice. Right, that's nice. I, it's it's like the little things I remember. I remember um, when I saw uh, Brendan Rogers, the Rockies infielder, as an amateur at his high school in Lake something, Florida. I can't remember where, um, but it has the word lake in it. Um, and, and his father grilled for all the scouts. <laughs> like, there's just a guy with a grill. I'm like, oh, that's nice that they're doing that. And then his, like, I, I assume it was his mother, like, came to me and said, Do you want a hamburger or a hot dog or, or a sausage? You're like, We're grilling for the scouts. I'm like, this Oh, is that's great. awesome. It was great. Yeah. Um, it's just little memories like that. But yeah, the tacos in Mexico City, really good. That's, I mean, I want to experience that. I haven't traveled. Uh, you know, outside of the country for baseball, and that's something I have to, I have to get done. I have to find a reason, and and sell that to my editors. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's it for the email. Send your emails to us, chinmusic at fangrass dot com. Sahadev, it's time to catch up with you. All right, you are. Um, it's February eleventh. In a normal world, you would probably be packing a suitcase and have your hotel and or Airbnbs all lined up to spend the next six weeks in Mesa, or I assume most of the next six weeks in Mesa. Um, that's not happening. We talked about earlier, you are planning on heading down for minor league camp, which I assume is March 1st. Is that when that starts? It actually starts uh, February 22nd, and okay. I'll be there February 22nd. Um, so you're getting ready to do that. Uh, like how we talked, Andy McCullough was the, was our, our co-host, and Andy talked about how, and, and the news, we, there was news since then that, Major League Baseball was fine with clubhouse access again, but obviously the players' union has to approve of this still. Um, he's very pessimistic of you guys getting into a clubhouse <laughs> again. Do you share that pessimism? Andy was pessimistic? Are we I talking know, about the same Andy? It's shocking, um, I know. <laughs> I Okay, so I am an optimist, right? But and again, this, like since that happened, like, it, it, like Major League Baseball said we're opening the clubhouses again. Still needs player right. approval, but they, they said that. I don't love that they did that. At first, I was thrilled. I was out like buying groceries at the time. And I can't tell you how happy I was when I read that email. 
And then when I saw the player approval thing and I'm like, are they playing with our emotions here? Are they are they messing with us and just letting us this is a, something we all hold dearly, right? We like that clubhouse access is a big deal to us. I know it's not a big deal to everyone else, but it's a big deal to us. Sure. And and I didn't like when I thought about it more, I'm like, they're sending this out before it's approved. So when it if it if if it doesn't get approved, we are going to be annoyed with the players. Right. It was always going to be the players that said no. But what frustrates me is that this is sent out and <laughs> we're supposed to assume that, OK, MLB has approved this. So MLB proposes it and and they're, they've got a deal done. Right. Everything's done. This is the final thing. Just OK. And players are like, no. Is MLB going to say, no, we're fighting for this and the deal isn't getting done until we uh, hammer this out? No, they'll just say, OK, and move on. Right. So it's not like MLB is fighting for us. So that's a, it's a little frustrating that we're kind of being manipulated because they know how important that is to us. And they're trying to get like, look at the players. They're not agreeing to this if that happens. Now, this is my most skeptical and, you know, like I, I'm being very negative there and, and assuming the worst. Uh, but let's let's say that now that that's out there, I here's the deal. I all the players I talk to. They claim they want us back in there. Mm -hmm. All right. I know there's a segment and there's a, uh, a vocal segment uh, that happens to originate in, in New York uh, that don't want us back. Right. And right. that sucks. That's too bad. Um, I have had very few bad experiences with players. I new players that don't know me. I let them know, hey, I'm not trying to get you here. I'm not looking to trick you. I'm not looking for you to give me information you're not supposed to give me. Like I, hey, like or at least trick you into giving me information. Right. Like if you want to give me information you're not supposed I'll to give me, it. I'm happy to listen. But I'm not going to trick you or anything like that. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not here to manipulate you. And I, I, I've built a reputation up of not of being really good with them and being fair and honest and whether you're doing something right or wrong i'm going to be fair as fair as i possibly can and and it's worked it's worked really well for me i've built a lot of relationships you can't do that without clubhouse access i don't care that we come out on the field you know what happens when you come out on the field all the players come out come off the field at the same time you're not getting three interviews done you're getting one maybe if that guy that you run up to and say hey you got a second says yeah and then if they don't oh crap everyone else just walked by me and they're in the clubhouse now right so it's really frustrating and these are not this is this is no one else's issue but ours right and i get it but i'm telling you we're not serving the fans as well as we can without getting in that clubhouse I hope that that was truly in good faith and that that the, they'll that the players will be like, yeah, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. Let's get let them back in spring training, the regular season, getting pre and post game access matters a lot. Like I my best stories have been in the clubhouse and some of them have been spurred by casual conversations where I'm not looking for anything other than to shoot the shit with random player x I, mm -hmm. I can i go to this story a lot because i still love this story but it was 2016 near the end of the season and the debate of is it the cubs elite defense or the cubs pitching right what uh which which is good for what reason right and 
and I was talking to John Lester about it, right? And and Lester's like, I I think he's like I he's like I don't think people give us enough credit. The pitchers, he's like, maybe we make the defense look good. We're the ones uh, getting all that weak contact. We're the ones uh, like they have easy plays because of us. And and I thought it was super interesting, right? I, I loved the conversation. And then he in the middle of the conversation, he says. He points to Kyle Hendricks. That guy over there, he worked his butt off to change who he is as a pitcher. And, like, this was all stuff I did not know. And he starts going into it. Like, just a casual conversation, kind of talking about baseball. And I wasn't talking about Kyle Hendricks. He brought it up. I dug into that over the next two weeks. And it's still my favorite story that I put out. And remember, this is 2016. The Athletic has been around for now a season of baseball. It went right, out right. before Kyle Hendricks' first playoff game uh, that year. Uh, my editor was kind enough to kind of send it around to some national writers, including Ken Rosenthal, who was not with The Athletic at the time. Ken wrote back and was like, this is amazing. He promoted it on a playoff game on TV. Like, it was. it's still one of my proudest pieces. And it was it was all because I had clubhouse access. I talked to Kyle Hendricks. I talked to Tommy Hottaby, who was a pitching uh, video guy at the time. Mm-hmm. I talked to Mike Borzello, and they all explained things to me about why, how this worked, how it happened, the battle, and like how they convinced Kyle that certain pitches that he wasn't comfortable with, he needed to start using more because in these counts, they know what's coming. They see it. This is what's happening, and this is right. why you're not getting through this inning and, and blah, 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 blah. And it was just... I mean, like it was fascinating to learn about as I gathered the information, and it was just a, a fun piece to write. And it's really hard to get those done when you don't have access to the clubhouse, where you can't have the casual conversation, where you can't interview three, four people, you know, before a game, where you can't go easily follow up and say, "I don't have like a, a ten-minute interview." with you. I just have two follow-ups because we talked about this the other day and I just want to ask two quick questions. You can do it occasionally when you have field access. It's but it's not nearly as as easy and comfortable and when you do that you're missing out on something else because for that 2 second follow-up you could have gotten a 10 minute interview somewhere else. That doesn't like we have an hour access in pregame. Is everyone there? Is it perfect? Do they do sometimes they avoid us? Oh, yes, 100%. But it's much better. It is significantly better. And, you know, there are people that complain about them avoiding us. I'm like, hey, they avoid us. They avoid us. At least we're in here. At least we have a chance. If someone has to come get their phone from their locker, uh, I can at least ask them, hey, you have five minutes. They say no. They say no. You know, like I that's what gets me. It's like you can say no. Like what? Nobody's going to bark at you uh, unless you're a jerk. Yeah. Certain guys are going to be like, come on, give me more time. But that's that's not real that's not doesn't happen often and and like come on you're a baseball player you're you're likely much bigger than us you can you can push your way past us and go into your you know area where we're not allowed which is especially in the club cubs new clubhouse is quite ample they have plenty of places to hide yeah it's huge um so when you go to minor league camp in a couple weeks um you're not gonna you're certainly not gonna have clubhouse access to that nobody does as ever i've never seen that um but when the big leaguers finally show up and they will show up eventually. There's going to be a spring training at some point this year, whether it's in two weeks or 10, we don't know. But um, do you think you'll have clubhouse access? When spring training opens up? Yeah. I, like I said, I'm an optimist. So 
I'm going to say yes, because that means the deal is done and if it's either yes or no. Right. So I'm going to say yes. Like if it's not, if it's no, then that means it's never again. Uh, so I, I have to say yes, because I, I don't want to think about no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's time for a moment of culture. So I'm going to go first. So we talked a, a, a I don't know, three or four weeks ago about, and I wrote about this, about Sleep Baseball, which was a, a art project by a, a wacky Chicagoan where he made up a face, fake baseball game and announced it in a very uh, calm and soothing voice. And it's designed to put you to sleep. It's a fake baseball game designed to put you to sleep because he liked listening to real baseball to fall asleep to, but it was too uh, loud and the commercials were too loud. It's a very calm baseball game designed to put you to sleep. And I am the kind of person who does like listening to things to fall asleep to. Um, uh, and and my wife does not like to listen to things to fall asleep to, but one thing she does is thinks about movies, right? The movies that she's seen, and then she's kind of like, starts recreating the movie in her head, scene by scene, and that's something she can fall asleep to. And I have an audio version of that, and it is a website called that I've used a few times called listentoamovie.com. And it is literally just an audio file of a movie. And they have tons of movies. And I always pick something you know, because that's what you're going to fall asleep to. Because you can't, you don't want news and surprising. So this is great falling asleep to stuff. Because you're thinking about the movie. So my go-to, and I've never gotten more than 15 minutes in before falling asleep, is Apocalypse Now of all things. <laughs> and so, but it's just the audio file. So it starts, and then there's helicopter noises. And then the doors sing. You think about helicopters and fire. And then, and then Martin Scene says, you know, says Saigon, shit. And then they, and then he showers, and they go and get him. And you know, in the, in the scene where they're in the office and explain to him who Kurtz is and that they have to kill him. By the time that's over, I'm asleep. Wow. And they've they've hundreds of movies. It's just audio files of movies. It's the best thing in the world to fall asleep to. You put on something you know, like even when I put on, I tend to, I often turn on comedy to fall asleep to, but it's not new. It's something. It's like an album that I know. And I can fall asleep to that, but it's a movie, you know, so listen to a movie.com. I think it'd be probably good background stuff when you're working too, but huh. I, I'm a huge fan of this. It's just, it's just audio files of entire movies. Listen to a movie. Wow. Okay. Well, I am a big background noise. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like utter silence. Like even every night I, uh, I'm the last person to sleep in this house. My wife is a nurse. So she, when she works, she gets up early. She naturally gets up early. We have two kids, uh, they stay up later than my wife, but uh, <laughs> but they also just because they're uh, you know they're at, at an age where they go to their bedrooms, but they just kind of stay up reading or, right, or, right, right. or doing something. And and uh, I'm up till midnight, one o'clock, uh, because of baseball schedule. I don't like to throw off my sleep schedule even in the off season, but I don't always like to stare at TV, right? I I but I like noise, and I don't want to put music on too loud. But I put the TV on. I'll put like a sports center type thing on in the background and read. So I, I love that. I, before I started dating my wife, I would fall asleep to the TV uh, mm. because that's just how I was. She doesn't like that. So we stopped doing that because, you know, I'd rather her get a good night rest than me fall. I mean, it's, it's a bad habit uh, to really fall asleep to the TV every night, but I do like a little bit of noise uh, yeah. to, to fall asleep to. Um, so that's really interesting. I'll have to check that out. Uh, should I go? Should is go? It, yeah, yeah. So my my thing is, so I've been really 
you know, over the last decade, I've been uh, really getting more into uh, understanding my Indian heritage and mm -hmm. and embracing it more. You know, I spent my I grew up in a very white suburb and I spent my youth uh, wishing I was white, which I feel, I still feel a tremendous amount of guilt about, but you know, I wanted to fit in. I was a kid sure. and that, that's what I wanted because your, I was, what, what generation are you? Uh, yeah. I'm in that gap of, uh, Oh, what do you mean? Oh, my like parents, what, uh, oh, yeah. My parents moved uh, to this country from Indian and in, India in 75. Okay. So. so your parents were born in India. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I was born in Libertyville, Illinois in 1980. So I grew up there all my life. Uh, very white area at the time. Uh, there's a lot more Indians there now, I believe. But still, it, it's still a very white area. And, and it, I never felt uh, fully American until, you know, maybe the past uh, 10, 20 years. I've, I've started to embrace it more. But there's, a, you know, it, it's it can be hard sometimes to kind of identify and and to look back and and feel guilty that I didn't embrace the color of my skin or want to be something different. And, mm -hmm. and you know, that's not a great feeling. Uh, but I also want to understand those feelings. And there are a lot of people because in the 70s, I believe it was in the 70s, uh, they had, uh, I think the U.S. kind of opened up to uh, medical uh, a lot of doctors, there was a doctor shortage. So a lot of doctors right. from India came and that's what, that's why I'm, I'm here. My dad was, uh, is a retired psychiatrist and came to this country and, uh, and, and practiced psychiatry for who knows how long was it? 30 years or something like that. 30 plus years he practiced. Uh, and so there's a lot of us there's a, and you're seeing, and, and we're not all doctors and lawyers and engineers. Like, uh, like a lot of us were, uh, expected to be right, and, and you're seeing more of it in pop culture, whether it's Aziz Ansari and Mindy Kaling, and and a, a lot of that stuff resonates with me. Like their their shows about Indian people and and certain things. Uh, what really gets me now is I'm you know I have two kids that are half Indian and half white, and and I live in a very open area, like a very progressive area in Evanston. So I don't, it's not about uh, how they're treated now, but I, I want to be prepared for certain things. And there's a book called Good Talk by Mira Jacob that I've been reading. And it's, it's just like a, it's a memoir. It's like a, uh, what are those called? It's, it's more of a, um, a graphic memoir. It's not like a, mm -hmm. it's not like a real book here you know it's not a novel and it and it's just great it's just random conversations she has so mira is just like me a, a second generation indian uh, uh indian american and she she married someone that's white and she has uh you know a uh, mixed race child and and it's just conversations with from the past with family members uh with the child with her husband and all these different things and really awkward conversations at times and sometimes really awful conversations and mm. things that uh, mistakes that we make as parents mistakes that we made uh, as Indians growing up in a white world uh, in America and, and things that we felt about ourselves or about others, our own little uh, idiosyncrasies that we've dealt with. And it's just, it, it resonates with me and it's, it's nice to read about and prepare me for any conversations I may have with my kids. And, 
honestly, it's kind of cool to listen to my kids talk about being Indian because it's very different than the way I talked about it. Right. My right. kids, uh, my kids talk about how cool it is and how cool that when we eat Indian food, they get to eat with their hands. And <laughs> when my mom visits uh, all the cool food she makes for them back when I was a kid that I hated and now I love, right. Cause I ate it every day and I just what, wanted a burger and pizza or best, whatever. What, what's, what's the best thing she makes? Oh, she makes, so there are these things that I couldn't stand as a kid and it's <laughs> it's rice based right it, it's just rice and there's like a like a liquid over it it's called russum that i love you put a little ghee on it with uh with the russum mix it together there's vegetables and then for uh, after that uh it's like a yogurt and rice or uh, mm -hmm. or a buttermilk and rice mixture and there's these uh, pickled things that are like it can be like pickled mangoes or, or right. lemons uh, that you, that are spicy, that are really spiced up that you mix with that. Those I like I can't tell you how much I hated it as a kid. And I make it now. Like I asked my mom for the recipe. I I make it as much as I not, I, I don't make it a lot because it's because uh, it, it's just not something that we're going to eat as much as I did as a kid. But I'll, right. I'll make it once a month. And I. I love it. It's it just reminds me of being a kid and and uh it's interesting how much I disliked it back then, but maybe it's because I just ate it every day uh and just how much it just uh how much joy it bring, brings me now. That sounds great. Yeah. Um so so like what you know obviously the world's changed from 1990 to 2022, but like what are the kind of the more dramatic changes do you think like between your experience and your kids? Oh, I mean, well, it's well, specifically for my kids, they're growing up in they grew up at like started growing up in the city in a heavily Puerto Rican neighborhood. Uh, so they there weren't. Yeah, okay. we we were in Humboldt Park until 2018. Yeah, my last apartment uh, was in Humboldt. OK, and and then we we moved to Evanston and we, you know, it felt like giving up at times, but CPS is rough. It, it just like, mm -hmm. there's, it, it's not that it's a bad education. It's that there's no stability. Teachers literally would leave in the middle of a, of a year. And that's really tough on kids, especially young kids. Uh, so we just wanted a little more stability. Uh, but for me, I told my wife, like, I don't want, I don't want to go to a place like Libertyville. Not that Libertyville is a bad place. I, I loved my childhood. They're just, I don't want them just like, I have a friend who I didn't realize this until recently. He was, he looked at himself as the poor kid in Libertyville and that like, I didn't notice that. And I'm sure he didn't notice that. I looked at myself as like, like wishing, like he wished he was rich. I wished I was white. Right. Like, and I'm sure he didn't notice that about me right, because he was right. just my friend. And I didn't notice that he was poor just because he's my friend. You know, he was, a, he's a great dude and that's all we cared about. But those are our own hangups, right? My my kids don't have any of those hangups in here. Like, first of all, like well, diversity. You you see them. What's that? You said like you know your friend didn't see that, and you didn't see these qualities in your. Friend. Oh, you if I see those in your own kid. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe I mean they have. I mean I'm sure they have their own issues, but I don't think diversity or the color of their skin is as much as it was for me because mm -hmm. it's a little more where. We're a little more diverse here in Evanston, especially when they get to high school. It'll be very diverse. And then 
it's just they they talk about these things a lot more. They uh, mm. my son has had a teacher that uh, I believe it was third grade, uh, so he's in fifth grade now. So it was the the pandemic shortened year, so they lost the last two months of school. Uh, but she was amazing. She talked about all sorts of things that would be completely taboo for if I was in third grade, right. like just things you couldn't talk about. And a lot of it was race. And, and I think, I think that's important to understand and, and to talk about at a young age and to, to, to understand these things and the differences or similarities between all of us. And, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge and it's going to be interesting watching them grow up. My son, very clear that, uh, he's, he's not white uh my daughter at, at the moment could probably present as white and get away with it and uh i like those those life experiences matter and like mm-hmm. that's going to matter about how people react to you talk to you that's it's going to matter in certain places at certain times right so i'm very curious to see how it ends up i there's no way to fully prepare for it but it, it's a, it's it's going to be different than what I experienced just because we live in a very different time and world, but, and in a different area. Do you, this is a weird question, but like, do you feel like you almost have them in a bubble because of where you live? Oh yeah. Yes. (laughs) Certainly. I, we talk about it a lot. Like I, I mean, just when, as far as, I mean, so many things like where I, my wife and I are in a bubble here, you know, yeah, I understand sure. that. Like when we talk politics, we're, we're in a bubble. Like there's, we're not very rarely are we going to uh, run into someone that drastically disagrees with us now. Like I'm extreme. Like I'm, I'm pretty far left with my beliefs. So I, I, but I'm not like, I'm not going to talk about it a lot unless I'm really comfortable with someone. So mm-hmm. I, I don't, I keep it to myself because I'm just not interested in getting in those arguments. And, and that's not who I am. That's not, you know, I, I'll, I'll fight my battles in my own way. It's not going to be debating my neighbor. Uh, but it, you're not going to run into super conservatives very often here. And that's, and I understand that in Libertyville, very different. Yeah, you know, sure. <laughs> so it's it's a very different place. And that's fine. Like, that's, a, you know, if you choose to live there, that's great. But that's I think, yeah, I live in a bubble. I, I know that I chose the bubble, but it's not like I stay in my bubble and I don't understand what's going on outside of it. Right. The, the kids hopefully will and Ease do because, yeah, we, we talk about things. It's not like we're hiding them from it. It's not like. They're in this bubble and we will not talk about what goes on outside of it. You know, we're not we're not keeping them from reality. Right. That was our deep conversation today. <laughs> Had to get serious there yet again. <laughs> I think we're done here. All right. I can't thank you enough for, for wasting your Friday with me. Oh, that's all right. This was fun. I'm if glad it worked want, out. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where do they go? They go to Sahadev Sharma. Uh, just, just right there. And they can, of course, read my work at the athletic and, uh, yeah, please subscribe and read the work. I, I think we, we do pretty damn good work. My partner, Patrick Mooney, we, if you like the Cubs, uh, you know, I'll just, uh, just to promote myself here a little bit. I, I think we do some pretty standout work when it comes to covering the Cubs and, and I'd hold our work up against any and, and pretty sure you're going to get full coverage. 
And if you don't subscribe to The Athletic, just you know, wait a week. There'll be some sort of super deal for you. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and thanks for listening to everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Blow up in time.